sound is. At 3 a.m. on the 28th of October 1940, Italian ambassador to Greece, Emmanuel Grazzi, delivers an ultimatum from Benito Mussolini to Greek Prime Minister Ioannis Metaxas. Mussolini demands that the Italian army gain free passage through Greece to occupy strategic locations as part of their war effort. Metaxas is now faced with two choices, both of which will result in the deaths of many of his own people. Surrender or war? In the same laconic tradition as the Spartans before him, Metaxas's answer, given in the diplomatic language of the day, French, was simple. Then it is war, which was then translated to a simple ohi, no. Within hours, Italian troops would pour over the border, but so too did Greeks pour into the streets, shouting ohi in defiance. Thus, ohi day was born. The Italians would meet unexpectedly strong resistance, which would last for some six months. Greece delaying the Italian advance so much that it drew the attention of Hitler. Enraged by Italy's lack of progress, Hitler would ultimately mobilize his forces to take Greece. But the Greek resistance, hopelessly outnumbered, courageously continued. The Germans would commit brutal atrocities, including the murder of entire villages, the torturing and starving of those left alive in their pursuit of information, and other unspeakable acts. The result, though, far from breaking the Greek spirit, was further defiance. When the Nazis finally climbed the Acropolis and ordered that the Greek flag be taken down to be replaced with the Nazi swastika, the Evzon on duty, Kostadinos Koukidis, defiantly wrapped himself in the Greek flag and jumped off the rock to his death. A month later, Manolis Glezos, a future Greek politician, and his friend Apostolos Santas would climb the Acropolis and steal the Nazi flag inspiring the nation to continue its defiance against the brutal occupiers. Across the nation, Greeks would fight with incredible courage, but also with incredible cheek. As Germans took as dive-bombed Greek targets, Greeks stubbornly stood their ground, shooting back at aircraft with whatever meager firearms they had available. They would ambush paratroopers even before their feet hit Greek soil, while the Cretans would get away with kidnapping a German general. This defiance and patriotism inspired the praise of world leaders. Adolf Hitler said, For the sake of historical truth, I must verify that only the Greeks, of all the adversaries who confronted us, fought with bold courage and highest disregard of death. Winston Churchill The word heroism, I am afraid, does not render the least of those acts of self-sacrifice of the Greeks, which were the defining factor in the victorious outcome of the common struggle of the nations during World War II for the human freedom and dignity. If it were not for the bravery of the Greeks and their courage, the outcome of World War II would be undetermined. Until now, we used to say that the Greeks fight like heroes. Now we shall say the heroes fight like Greeks. Joseph Stalin. I am sorry because I'm getting old and I shall not live to thank the Greek people whose resistance decided World War II. Charles de Gaulle. I am unable to give the proper breadth of gratitude I feel for the heroic resistance of the people and the leaders of Greece. Georgi Konstadinovich Zurov, Marshal of the Soviet Army. If the Russian people managed to raise resistance at the doors of Moscow, to halt and reverse the German torrent, they owe it to the Greek people, 
who delayed the German divisions during the time they could bring us to our knees. The troops of Australia and New Zealand, the Anzacs, would be on hand to assist the Greeks. What you're about to hear are some of the lesser-known stories of those Anzacs. Their connection to Greece and their connection to the people who, in many cases, helped save them. So while the world knows well the stories of Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Iwo Jima, the Battle of Britain and Midway, let's not forget the crucial contribution of Greece in helping to decide the greatest military conflict the world has seen, all embodied in a simple defiant word, Ohio. This episode of Uzo Talk is brought to you by Lateral, contemporary apartments for lease designed with your lifestyle and comfort in mind. With apartments located close to public transport, restaurants and shops, Lateral gives you access to the perfect work-life balance. From sunny rooftop pools to modern underground gyms and work-from-home hubs, Lateral's residents are provided with modern amenities to maximize well-being and enhance community living. Visit lateralres.com.au to find out more. Lateral. It's renting. Reimagined. Nick, welcome to a very special episode of Uzo Talk. How are you, my friend? I am excellent, Tom. I uh, can't wait for this episode to kick off. It's very uh, very emotional and passionate for us. Absolutely. I've always loved history, and I know you do too, in particular World War II. So we both seem to love the books, the documentaries, the movies, but in all of that, there's not too much in the way of Greek history of World War II in popular culture, is there? Which is bizarre when you think about that intro that we just heard isn't it it is it's very bizarre tom there's so many amazing stories to be told and yeah it should be recorded and we're not sure why i feel as though it's really important for us to be telling these stories the americans obviously through hollywood do a great job of telling their stories other cultures do a great job of telling their stories as well through other mediums you know Maybe this is another way that we can sort of get the get the word out via podcast. Look, it's also important to mention that World War II is actually the reason why many of our families ended up in Australia or in the US, in Canada, or in the UK. Certainly for mine, I suspect may maybe similar for your family too, Nick. Yeah, the main reason was we came out here because there was nothing left in Greece. There was no work. But a lot of my ancestors did fight in World War Two, so yeah. that's why uh, it's going to be a really interesting discussion we're going to have. Very close to your heart. It is definitely. So I had uh, my dad. Older first cousin Costa Thanasio was involved in yep. World War Two. My dad's sister's husband, Papa Fortis, Fortis Papa Fortis, was involved as well. They were resistance fighters. Yep. My grandmother actually got caught by the Germans as well. She wow. was a prisoner for several weeks. Yeah. So a lot of my ancestors were involved, but uh, I should do a bit of digging around because I'm sure there's a lot more stories in my own family yeah. that I don't know about that would be worth sharing. It, there's countless stories. I mean, even in, even in my family, there are stories of my great-grandmother being beaten by the Italians for stealing pasta off them. You know, my wife's family, two mm. of her great-grandfathers passed away in Albania. Yeah, wow. It's, it's obviously something that, that digs close to the bone for, for most of our families. But look, it's such an important topic we need some experts to do justice to this conversation. So with us here in the distillery, 
We have archaeologist, historical research consultant, and author of the book, The Forgotten Flotilla, Dr. Michael Benden. Welcome to Usort Talk, Michael. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Nick, we also have our first returning guest as well, in the form of proud Cretan and font of knowledge, Nick Andriotakis, who has a very close connection to the commemoration of the Battle of Crete. Nick, welcome back, mate. Good to be here again, Tom. The legend, living legend. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're, you're almost Great a producer of this show. No. <laughs> 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 oh dear. It's great you guys have the energy and the and the vision to put it together. Thank you very much. As ever, you've come bearing gifts though as well. What have you brought for us to, to drink this evening? So, so our story today will cover the Australian story in Greece, World War II. And as we move through the stories and as we move through the, um, the legacy, we also move through the landscape. And through that landscape come out these magnificent boutique spirits peculiar to the vineyards and the and the terroir of these places. Mm-hmm. Whilst we don't have any documentary evidence, I'm sure the Anzacs would have had some of these drinks and some of these spirits. Wow. To lift their spirits. Yeah. <laughs> I can see that just having a smell of the, the one that we've just poured here, you can just see a bunch of diggers sitting around trying to drink this up. Absolutely. Stuff. Definitely. Yeah. And there wouldn't have been enough rum to go around in Greece for all the Aussies, <laughs> so they would have tucked into some of that tipped off for yeah. sure. Partaken of the local fare, yeah, so as they say. The first one is... Um, is a barrelized tipuro from northern Greece, a classic tipuro that's been stored in barrels, and it's called the Dark Cave. And this is an aromatic tipuro. It's it's got this beautiful honeydew um, color. It's taken the um, the tannins and it's taken the essences out of the uh, mm-hmm. barrels, and um, that's what we are sampling for the first one. And it's important to mention that tipuro and raki in general usually is is clear. It look, yeah, it's just and they really like are the same drinks, but. I suppose in, in mainland Greece they call it Tsipuro, in Crete they call it Tsikudia yes. or Aki. And um, it's, it, the difference is basically the grape varieties and the terroir. Yeah. That's it. The landscape, the climate, the water, all, all those nuances and differences mm. and the soil profile and that, all these things give these unique characteristics. I can't think of a better way to start off this episode with, uh, with the people in this room than with a, with a nice drink yeah. that, you, that you've provided, Nick. So thank Cheers. you for being here again. Thanks, Gentlemen, Stiniyamas, thank you for being part of this. Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers, long Cheers. distance. There you go. It smells great. And you can taste the barrel in it. You can taste the barrel. Yeah. The oak. It's beautiful. The oak. Nick, you mentioned well, yeah. there was there was no documentary evidence about the Anzacs um, sampling all of yeah. this. Now you know why. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I think if you look at a lot of the personal diaries that some of the men kept, they uh, the alcohol of Greece features quite strongly. Does wow. it really? They mention quite a lot about sampling. They were very impressed that it was cheap. Really? And... <laughs> Well, on, on the, the Greek beer, even, they said yes. this is the, the, the beer that's closest to what we have at home. Mm. Wow. And often they mention getting invited into uh, the locals' houses and homes mm. and sampling wow. the local, the local, the local tipple. So they were impressed by it? By oh, what very much so. I, I think that um, they, young men, they were very alcohol orientated. I yeah. think Work, working very hard, <laughs> Not knowing Australians, anything yes, alcoholic very much so. well. Very much so, I think. So there is documentary evidence in some of the diaries about them getting out there and trying wow. it out. So there you go. So we're drinking what the Anzacs drank, Tom. As always, we're drinking history on this show. Yeah. 
as always. Liquid history. <laughs> That's Liquid <it>. history. <laughs> Here we go again. <laughs> oh, dear. Fantastic. Well, I think we're going to... You've brought some other things as well, Nick, but we'll probably get, get into yeah, those. Yeah, we'll as get the, into those as we go through the journey. There's one, two, three, four, five bottles on the on the table, of which I think we'll probably try most most of before the night's out. We should be trying them all. <laughs> I think we might have to, Tom. They're all Why nicely not? shaped, different bottles, so there's different forms of liquid in there. We're going to have to try it all. Outstanding. Fantastic, gents. Well, look, Michael, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about what you do and what's your connection to Greece because you made a very important World War II discovery um, not too long ago in Crete, which resulted in your book, didn't it? Yeah, that's correct. I'm an archaeologist, as, as you said. I worked for a great number of years in Israel and then went up to Germany. And I really wanted to get back to the Mediterranean, so I, I wrote a quick email off to a very well-known diver and archaeologist in Crete, uh, Elpida Hajidaki, and she invited me to come down and work with her. And so I went down and I was working on the ancient site of Thalassana in western Crete. Right. And I don't know if you've ever done any archaeological work, but in the middle of summer in Crete it's pretty hot. And when the wind comes up you get pretty dusty and dirty. So we'd always go for a swim. We were very lucky. It's a, a maritime site. We're right on the coast. So I went for a swim and Elpita, Elpita said to me, she said, there's a wreck over there. And I said, oh, what is it? And she said, oh, I don't know. It's World War II. And I said, well, can I have a look at it? And she said, go over and have a look. So I, I swam over to it. When I came back, I asked her some more questions about it. And she said, I don't know much about it at all. But some of the locals might. So mm. she took me around to, to meet some of the locals and speak about it. But uh, I did ask her, I said, well, I'd really like to do the research on this wreck if I could and she mm. said it's yours go do the work so from that point I think it must have been 2009 perhaps right. I, I started work on it and I found some of the most incredible stories connected to this uh, as an archaeologist I've always worked on ancient sites but suddenly here I was getting into World War Two, mm. and it became almost all-consuming in right. a way. The idea of being able to find in the documents, um, in the archives, to, to find references to people, to places, to the events. And then I could trace those when I was in Crete. I could move around and I knew the places. On that point, there was a name that just kept coming up associated with this vessel type that I'd found. And it was a, a, British, a British fellow, a John Digby Sutton. I'd been researching for almost two years. I'd, I'd identified the vessel type. I knew what was going on with it. Uh, I'd been to the archives and I'd picked a few things out. And I wanted to find out more about the vessel type. So I went to an internet forum and I, I put this on. A question, I said, I'd like to find out more about a vessel type, a, a landing craft tank. I would say within two hours, I got a, a reply and it said, well, I live next door to somebody who knows somebody who lives next door to a landing craft skipper from World War II. Wow. Mm. And I thought, oh, well, that's, that's good. Can I, can, <laughs> I get his number? can I get his number? And they said, yeah, well, we'll ask him. And so the next day I've got his number and I've called, called him up and a, a very proper British gentleman answered the phone. Oh, hello. And I, I said, I, I hear you're a landing craft skipper in World War II. And he said, yes, 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 I was. And I said, what, what type of landing craft? And he said, oh, it was a landing craft tank, Mark 1. Landing craft tank, Mark 1. And I thought, oh, that's what I've got. 
And I said, what happened to it? And he said, those damn Jerry's bombed me and sank it. And I thought, well, that's what happened to the vessel I've got. And I said, where? He said, Western Crete. Oh, you're kidding. I said, John, I've found your vessel. Wow. I found the actual skipper for the vessel. Wow. Uh, (laughs) And I went over and spent a lot of time with him before he passed away. I I met him when he was 93, I think. He passed away at 98. Pardon? 2009. Uh, I think I went over in 2012. Okay. Right. Wow. Because uh, tw- we organised it, and um, fortunately, I was able to organise uh, uh, HD video with interviews and that. Great. But we used to just go up to the pub, and he'd drink a, a half, and I'd drink a pint, and off we'd go. And <laughs> I'd record all these conversations, and he just told me some of the most incredible stories. But one of the things he used to say to me was, "Those, those bloody Aussies." Irrepressible, irrepressible as Aussies. Glad they were on our side. Glad they were on our side. You know, he used to tell stories. He'd drop them off back in Crete and they'd be getting off saying, thanks, Skipper, we owe you a drink. See you in town. So the irrepressible Aussies, he just uh, enjoyed spending a lot of time with the Aussies Mm. there. But he passed away at 98 and I went over to give the eulogy at his funeral. His family said you'd made such a difference to him. It brought it all back. He'd never spoken about Greece or Crete or what had happened to him. And suddenly he started to tell all the stories wow. about the evacuation of Greece and the, the Anzacs mm. and what he did in Crete, taking the, taking the tanks round to Retimo or to Heraklion and talking about the bombing and the Greek people yeah. um, and the Cretan people. You know, I, I asked him, I said, well, John, was it, what's it like to be bombed by a Stuka? I said, is it scary? He said, no, it's not scary. It's a job. It's a job. And I, I guess the man... Very at stiff that stage, up Yeah, well, 21 years old. I mean, yeah. you, mm, fearless. You, yeah, you're indestructible yeah. at 21. And I think that's the way John was. He just looked at it as an adventure. I can't help but think for someone like yourself as an archaeologist who would deal with stuff that's generally a li- much older than what you, uh, what you encountered in that bay, how was it being able to speak to someone connected to, to what you were looking at? My greatest ever discovery. Really? My greatest ever discovery. And I looked, I, I was, I never had a plan to write a book about the, the wreck or what was going on in Greece and Crete at that time. But having met John, I felt that I wanted to do something for him before he passed away. So I, I wrote the book. And that's when I started doing all the research. I, I did mention to you earlier when I came in, I was wearing a very special pair of shoes. Oh, yeah. Tell you us did. about the shoes. We're admiring mm. those shoes. Well, it, it came to the point when the book was printed, or it was late getting printed, and they were able to give me 20 advanced copies, no, 30 advanced copies. And I was on my way to the airport when they gave them to me. And I got to the airport, and the, the book, the book weighs just over a kilo. So we've got 30 kilos of books, and yep. I had them in my suitcase. <laughs> and they said, uh, you're overweight. And I said, well, how much for excess baggage and they said oh, $70, $70 a kilo oh. and I said no that's not going to happen so I threw everything out of my bag except the books I arrived in the middle of winter into London in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and my thongs Wow! and my mate picked me up from the airport we went up to see John the skipper he's met me before and he, he knows I'm uh, a fairly casual dress dresser <laughs> anyway but not this casual in the middle of winter <laughs> And he, he just opened the door and I just, oh, Michael. 
and I said, it's okay, John, it's okay, John, I'm, I'm going out to buy some trousers and shoes. And I told him the story, and he loved that story. Yeah. And he said, what size shoe do you take? And I said, eight and a half. And he said, ooh, I've got some pairs of shoes I don't wear. And I said, John, I don't want your shoes. And he said, no, no, I don't wear them. So he brought me out three beautiful pairs of shoes. And I said, John, I'll wow. take one pair. So I chose one pair of shoes. Now, these shoes I have taken with me everywhere. I wear these shoes even in the middle of summer. I'll put them on and walk out to the rec site. I've taken these shoes to the Shepherd's Hotel in Cairo where John used to go to drink. These shoes have had a drink there. Wow. We've been to Malame, we've been, these shoes have been to Retim or to Hurak, you know, wow. everywhere John went. We've walked up the stairs that John used to walk up in these shoes. These shoes, I've worn these shoes to the prisoner of war camp John spent his time in. I've been to the beaches of Greece where John picked up all the Anzacs in these shoes. Wow. Uh, to Porto Raftus, I walked down on that beach. And so these shoes have been everywhere with me for that. And lots of people will say, oh, yeah, I've walked in the footsteps of heroes. Mm. I walk in his actual shoes. Wow, <laughs> oh, unbelievable. This, and whenever I, I give a presentation or talk to people about Greece and Crete and about John, I wear his shoes. So they're a very, very special pair of shoes. And wow. I'm, not a, I'm not a real shoe person, yeah. but these are very, very comfortable shoes. Mm, what, so, a story. what a story. Yeah. How good was that? And it's important to, to mention as well, people are going to be thinking, okay, what do these shoes look like? Michael is wearing a suit at the moment. Well, so, well of, you know, the sports, sports, ja <laughs> sports coat, let's say, uh, with a with a nice button-up shirt, and these shoes do not look out of place in in this uh, in in this makeup. <laughs> John John was a very proper gentleman. Yes, a very well dressed man. I think these were handmade shoes. Wow! So, what a story, Nick! Yeah, fantastic! I'm Jeez. just blown away. What a great story, Michael. And you walked Good from, shoes. and you, those shoes walked you from the station to here. Oh yes, they, they did. did. <laughs> they did. They did. Yeah. Oh, they've been everywhere. They've been to 42nd Street. They've been everywhere. These shoes. Wow. Wow. Uh, Fantastic. With the, the Greek and Cretan dust on them. Wow. Yeah, so. it's like the old backpackers used to put a flag on their backpack of every city they've been to or country they've been to. You have to start doing that on your shoes, John. I think shoes I have been everywhere. I think I might. <laughs> Outstanding. Oh, thanks for sharing that. It's a great yeah. story. And you're also researching and compiling the first nominal role for every Australian Army personnel who embarked for Greece and Crete. Uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Since I've been, I've been working with Nick and, and friends with Nick, what we've talked about so much is so many Australians are not aware of what happened in Greece or Crete or even if yes. um, their relations went to Greece and Crete. They just don't know. I give a presentation and... People say, oh, I think my grandfather was there, but I'm not sure. It, it just doesn't seem foremost in their minds. Uh, you can say Tobruk, and everybody goes, yeah, Tobruk, Tobruk. Uh, Kokoda, yeah, Kokoda, Kokoda. Mm -hmm. All of these places people know. Yep. If you say Gallipoli, people say, oh, Anzacs. And then you mention, well, what about the second Anzacs? What do you mean, second Anzacs? People don't realise this. So Nick and I have so often talked about raising the awareness yes. of this throughout Australia. And one of the things that I thought it would be a very simple task is to go and find the names of everybody who embarked and went to Greece and Crete. It just wasn't. Yeah. 
The records were destroyed. They didn't keep records. A rucksack got stolen with the records on Svakia Beach. Um, the records went down on the Costa Rica. They burnt the records. They burnt all the pay records. They just they destroyed records. So they just they don't exist right. in many cases. So it took me almost three years, and I was very fortunate. I, I, I followed one lead and found what they call routine orders. Mm-hmm. The National Archives in Melbourne holds the routine orders for every World War II unit, but they'd never been examined. Nobody had ever looked at them. There's 7,212 files, mm-hmm. and nobody had ever looked at them. Wow. I actually had to make application to get them released. Mm-hmm. So I got the ones released that would fit for Greece and Crete, and I started to go through these. That's, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of pages, but what it did get for me uh, looking at hospital admissions, missing in actions, and they did have embarkation lists as well. Yep. I, was start, I was able to compile, compile a nominal role of every army personnel who went to Greece and Crete. Mm. Now, the official historian, uh, Gavin Long, speaks about 17,000 Australians embarking. Percy Spender, the then Minister for the Army, also brings this up in Parliament. Uh, when the opposition are asking him questions about, well, how many, how many people did embark? He says also around 17,000. I've confirmed now well over 18,000. Wow. A lot of the non-combatants, the, the service personnel that went, mm. I mean, I think 58,000 approximately, um, Brits and Australian, New Zealand, mm-hmm. all of these, 58,000, 35 were combatants. 23,000 non-combatants mm. and often they didn't include the non-combatants in their counts okay they they didn't include anti-aircraft protection on the ships uh, they didn't include tiny little units like the uh, second first kit store where two people went the mobile bacteria bacteriological unit mm. one person went wow. movement control one person but they all add up mm. yeah and i think as nick and i have spoken about so much it's it's getting recognition, and if people, or families realise that their their relations actually did go, perhaps they'll start to see some importance in the medals that are just tossed away in a drawer or that are being put on eBay, um, rather than just some monetary value for a letter or a postcard. You know, I can get ten bucks for that on eBay. I hope that people, and this is what we talk about with these untold stories, is to to get these to people to realise the importance. I once you put a letter or a postcard into a, a context, it gives meaning to it. And I think once the meaning's established, hopefully it'll give some significance to the family. A postcard has, what, 180 characters on it? How many sure. characters do you get in a tweet? These were the original tweets. Yeah. These were tweets from the front. Yeah, good point. Just these quick little snapshots. But if they're in context and people start to see the importance of them, and what their relations did and the sacrifices they made, I really think that it'll, it'll start to raise the awareness. So yeah. the nominal role, I'm, I'm now just finishing off a book that will carry the nominal role with, with a lot of um, stories I've collected, untold stories. People haven't heard these stories before. Mm. Hopefully once the book's there, then Nick and I have been talking about I've got a database that will make freely available for people to add to this database. With the nominal role, I'm, I mean, if any of your listeners ever wanted me to tell them if they had a relation 
that was in Greece or Crete, I can tell them in less than 30 seconds. Wow. Um, and I can give them the references for that as well. So that's the, that's the reason I've been working on the nominal role for mm. so long. Um, and it had never been done before. People would say to you, well, now you know why nobody ever did it before. <laughs> because it was, it's been quite a task. Wow. So Michael, did you, what, what was the final number? At the moment, I think I've got 18,163. Australians that served overseas. Australians that served overseas. I've included some, perhaps, that embarked or went to Greece later. If you look at the, say, uh, units such as the Graves Inquiry Units or the Searcher Teams, I think the job they did and the, the contribution they made to the Battle of Greece and the Battle of Crete in bringing closure to the, the lost or the missing, I think they need to be included in any nominal role, even though they embarked a little bit later. I, I've included them as well. I, I've, of course, I've noted that these people did embark later. Are these people down as being enlisted men? Oh, yeah, they're all they're enlisted. The numbers are there. Any service personnel has a service number, uh, you know, with the prefix NX for New South Wales, QX for Queensland, etc., the, the problem is that these numbers are attached to anything they do, and they do have a service record. But the problem with the service records that the National Archives carry now is that there were three copies of what the service record, what we call the B103s. There was a travelling copy, a base copy, and a unit copy. This meant that they were spread out, mm. and they were meant to be married up, right. and they never got married up in many cases. So when you go to the archives and pull out a service record for a particular person, often there'll be a gap. It could be a year. But the gaps you find in the service records for Greece and Crete are very, very common, very common, because all their travelling service records would have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. So you've got a a two- or a three-month gap in the service records. So often people will say uh, to records, did my relation go to Greece or Crete? And they say, we have no record of this. I've been able to trace them now. Over 18,000. Over 18,000. So it's a, it's a battalion and a half more than, than Gavin Long or Percy Spender tallied up. But I think that I'm working from a much better standpoint, that I've got access to a lot more than those people did. And I think that their tallies at that time, they did a pretty good job. Wow. Yeah, a pretty good job with Fantastic. it. Fantastic. We're so happy that you're here with us today, Michael, to impart your knowledge. And there's going to be some great stories told. But before we get to that, Nick Andriotakis, welcome again. And we already know that you're a Greek wine expert from the last episode that we did here. But you have a very keen interest in World War II and in particular the Battle of Crete. Just explain to everyone what your connection is to it. Yeah, so the story for our family starts with my father being about eight years old and being asked by his parents to... Um, in the village to take some food to a Commonwealth soldier. They called him the Iglesi, but he could have been Australian, he could have been a New Zealander. Um, he was um, evading capture from the Nazis. And the story sort of starts there, but more closer to it is um, being in the Cretan dancing group at the age of 17, 18, around that period. You know, we, we'd all don our uh, vrakes and our boots and our knife around our waist with the, um, the belt and around our head, the tears of the warrior, which is a hat, like a kerchief embroidered or it's um, crocheted. And, um, you know, we'd be in the dancing group and so forth. But one of the things we used to do also was go to Anzac Day to uh, march with the diggers. So we, one, one Anzac Day, we, we all huddled there. The, the Greeks went there, the Cretans went there and um, we're up the top of George Street and um, 
The diggers are all getting together with their suits and their hats and their medals and the rosemary tucked on their lapels. They're all lining up. I was just standing on the footpath, probably just watching. And, and this, um, this digger said to me, Hey, young lad, come over here. So I walked over there and he says, You're from Crete, aren't you, son? You stand next to me. That's how I did that, you know. <laughs> well, about a, half a minute later, this man with um, a, a white hat and a, a special... Uh, Uniform. It was probably one of the Anzac marshals. With hindsight, obviously, I worked with. <laughs> he says, "Excuse me, young man. You can't stand here. Why, mate? These people saved my life. The boys staying here is marching with me. Sorry, mate. He can't stay. He's got to go out the back with the ethnics." Well, they started arguing, but in the end, I did go out the back with the ethnics. Mm. But not now. Now yeah. I'm here. And we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk about all those Australians that went there to defend Greece. Whether you believe it was a just cause or not, the fact is they went there. And they were there with the Greek people side by side. And that's why we're here. We're in this beautiful country. And this country has given a lot of opportunity to a lot of people that came. And like you said before, Nick and Tom, we came here as a direct result of Ohidei. Mm. So when the Greeks said no, and they, uh, they beat a much superior force in Albania and Nipiros, that's when Churchill decided that this country deserves to be supported, and he sent the English in and the Commonwealth forces. And part of that formation were the Australian New Zealanders, the Anzacs. The country was decimated during the Second World War. Greece lost 800,000 people, about 10% of its population. Yeah. It lost the biggest Jewish community in Europe. Is that right? Yeah, starvation, firing squads, executions, all of these things. And then there was a political vacuum in the, after the Second World War. And in that political vacuum started the Civil War. And so by 1950, this place was ravaged by war, destruction for 10 years. Mm. And there wasn't much. There was a whole generation, our parents' generation, that had no education, no schooling, no clothes, no medicine, and these people, by this time, were 20 years of age. By 1950, they were 20 to 25 to 18. And they were young, and they wanted to do something with their lives. And because of the, the Anzacs in Greece, and because of the relationships that were set up, they reported back, and they knew these people were good people. And Australia accepted a lot of Greeks from the 1950s all the way to the 1970s, and even today. But it all started there. Wow. And that's why we're in Australia. That's why we're in Canada, in Germany, in the United States. The post-World yeah. War II immigration starts because the Greeks said no. And the Greeks, as the quotes from Hitler, from Stalin, from all those people, they were the ones that resisted. They yeah. really resisted. Yeah. And short, they lost and they suffered. And we're here. We're here in Australia. We're yeah. fortunate to be in Australia. But that's why we're here. And yeah. I hope... I hope people listening to this story hope see and see Ohidei as a, as a day that deserves its recognition, its, its proper recognition, and it's more relevant to post-World War II Greeks in Australia. Just for those who maybe don't know the plight of the Greek people during, during World War II, I've got a small story that, that my grandfather tells, my papu here, who's been in the country since 55. He always tells the story, because he was born in 38, 39. So born in the midst of the war. He says to us often, 
that one of his earliest memories as a child is being in his cot and crying without ceasing for hours on end to the point where his mother would say, you know, she's at her wit's end. You know, why are you crying? And his response, you know, through tears was, I'm hungry. And they didn't have anything to give him. On the back of something like that, his village in particular, there is not one family in that village that doesn't have relatives in Australia now, all because of what yes. happened during that war. That's right. It's yeah. it's humble, and this yeah. and that's just one small yeah. story. Yeah, yeah. It's all oh, this huge amount of so, stories. So those the story, the story of that experience in Anzac Day has never left me. But also yeah. the 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 stories of our parents' generation mm. have never left me either. Shared was growing up in that, yep. and so these stories need to be told. These stories won't be told by the next generation. But, and our parents' generation are dying off. Like my father passed away this year, and I took him back to yeah. Crete and buried mm. him there in the village yeah. where the Germans were marching in 1941. I hope that we can, um, as a community, move forward and take Orchidae and elevate it to a much more relevant place in this society. Yeah, well said, Nick. Very moving, very yeah. touching, and a lot of Greeks could resonate with what you said. Yeah. Actually, nearly all Greeks in Australia would resonate with what you said. That's why we're here. But they couldn't have put it in the words that you've put it in. That's so right. Yeah. That's a good story. Well done, Nick. We obviously all heard that intro, and in light of what we've discussed here, maybe start with yourself, Michael. Why is Greece an important part of the story of World War II? What's the seminal part in this? I have a quote here from Hugh Gilchrist from 2004 that I think really sums it up. He says, okay. of all the episodes in Australia's relation, relations with Greece, Australia's part in the 1941 campaign is the most important. It lasted less than two months and ended with military defeat. But it profoundly changed the way in which these two nations viewed each other. I think what Nick just said, it's, that sums it up exactly. It's wow. how Greece and Australia look at each other now, mm. how they view each other, how they feel about each other. Uh, for me, when I was a young backpacker, of course, I went to Greece and looked around Greece and partied around Greece. But <laughs> to actually go back to Greece and do the archaeology of Greece um, and then to find World War II and the connection between Greece and Australia, I think that word profound is mm. probably an understatement when mm. it comes to that. It's the, the connection for me, I like, love everything Greek. Yeah. I mean, really, it's just, uh, it's just part of me now. I'm going back to Crete in um, August to excavate again. And it's just so exciting to actually be able to think about actually putting my foot and my shoes back <laughs> on the wreck site again. Yeah. And where this, I'll work on the wreck, but I'll also work on the ancient stuff as well. My, the woman I work with, Elpida, she doesn't understand how I wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I, I run, I run to the site and it's, it's mm. four kilometers away. And she says, we'll drive at seven o'clock. And I said, no, I'm getting over there early. because <laughs> I just, I just, the experience. It's very mm. Greek, isn't it? <laughs> the experience to, to, to sit there and yeah. I mean, and just take it all in. Mm. It's, it's quite an amazing yeah. 
amazing feeling. You know, people, when they find out you're an archaeologist, they, you know, there's a lot of questions. One of the questions is, have you ever found anything? And you think, <laughs> well, you know, I've been an archaeologist for 40 years, and I, I think that any businessman, if they'd been losing money for 40 years, they would have got out a long, long time before that. You know? It's, of course, I've found some of the most incredible things. Yeah. Uh, when they find out I do underwater archaeology, the next question is, oh, have you found any gold? <laughs> have you found treasure. any gold? You know, I think Titanic did that to underwater archaeology or sure. maritime archaeology, mm. and people expect there to be treasure. Mm. And interestingly... Oh, um, here we go. Oh, interestingly, <laughs> oh, you're <laughs> really... When I was working on the wreck, uh, a couple of the local shepherds came over and they said, oh, you're looking for the gold. What gold? What gold? This is a landing craft that carried tanks. Mm. You know, uh, El Peter did the interpreting for me. And, and what, what it seems is that there'd been a lot of people who had come to this wreck site looking for gold. They believed that the, the British ships carried gold, um, gold bullion. Mm, right. And I, I found, yeah, well, I found documents yeah. that, that said it did, they did carry gold bullion, right? but shipped mm. ashore on shorter ship. I mean, these landing craft did three knots and they had one gun. If you've got a lot of gold, you don't put it on a, an underarm yeah. ship. Mm. But also the, the skippers carried gold sovereigns. Okay. Because the local people, um, the, the local currency was no, of no use, so they were paid in gold. And these are the liras that we... The liras, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. are, I mean, they people wear jewelry, rings yeah. and necklaces. They and get married them. with them. Yeah, they get... Well, we, yep. <laughs> we, we got them for our wedding. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. so did I. Yeah, yeah same here. I've got a few. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, did yeah. the cravati when you, when you get Absolutely. married. We had yeah. a few letters chucked on the cravati yeah. as well. That's, That's it. it. Yeah. As well as a... The nearest yeah. child you see, nearest, yeah. we had a nearest boy, Yeah, that's the, that's, the youngest. That's from all the way from Ipito to Kriti, that one. Yeah, really. I got chucked on at age 21 at one stage. I was the youngest one in the, really? in the crowd. <laughs> Did it work? Did they uh, have a boy? Actually, No, it didn't. Okay. <laughs> it worked it for us. <laughs> yeah, so we at first one was a boy. So for those listeners out there, the tradition is when you get married, or the, is it the women that make the bed? Yes. The first bed. You throw coins on for... Who are supposed to be virgins, might I add. Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah, they're supposed to be. Okay. <laughs> Meant to be virgins. Yeah. And they threw, what, coins on the bed for good luck, I guess. Everyone throws yeah. money on the bed. And then yeah. you throw your preferred gender for your first child That's to be right. Born. They also throw ro- rice and um, rose petals too. Correct. I can't remember who we threw, but it was definitely a boy. We threw a boy on the bed. And I think the boy we threw on the bed started to pocket all the, the money that was on the bed. <laughs> hey, what are you I doing? They, they'd throw, the, apart from the coins, the, the $50 notes came out. And the yeah, oh, yeah, it was all notes. Notes yeah. and litters. Yeah, yeah. And the Cretans do this well, you yeah. know, really well, don't they, with, the, with, with notes. And no? No. no it's, it's not the Cretans. It's the, the Cypriots. 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 What's, yeah. what's the Cretan tradition? Uh, the Cretans don't. They just stare at the... The dagger, mate. The, the dagger. The dagger. Oh, yeah. the dagger. <laughs> they shoot guns in the air. That's it. And the gunshots in the air. That's it. Well, that, that's, oh, mate, that's... Even just in Australia, I've seen it. Really? Absolutely. Well, that's, that's just when I'm they're having a barbecue. Who, but the guns have been shot in Australia. <laughs> wow. Okay. Oh, dear. We're, we're getting sidetracked. But <laughs> we have. You haven't lived to been to a Cretan wedding. I know. I think, I think the tip what I was trying to knock on the door of us... <laughs> I mean, it's, it's obviously important to note that there is a strong connection between Australia and Greece in World War II. I mean, we've seen pictures of diggers wearing slouch hats up on the Acropolis. There are countless stories, you know, lesser, lesser known accounts of Anzacs and Cretan Limnos, aren't there? They are, and um, there were 
1,500 escapers and evaders in, throughout Greece, and we'll touch on some of those stories today. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a great interaction between the Greek people and, and Australians and, and New Zealanders. Part of it's the larrikinism, part mm. of it's the camaraderie, to the point where Australia doesn't have very many friends that it can rely on mm. in all conflicts over the 20th century. And one of those friends and allies has been Greece mm. in every conflict. Is that right? Greece and Australia have agreed in every conflict, along with the United States, obviously, England, the UK and New Zealand and France. But there's a special thing that Australia has with Greece, and that is over 2,500 Australians of Greek heritage have served Australia from wow. the Boer War in South Africa to the First World War to Gallipoli to France, Greece, Crete, Tobruk, Bardia, New Guinea, Kokoda. Wow. These are Greeks, Vietnam. Greeks serving in the Australians of Greek heritage serving Australia. Wow. New Guinea. Fantastic. Unbelievable. There's a, there's a lot of interwoven connections. There are memorials all over New South Wales hmm. and Canberra and Victoria and other parts of Australia that identify Greece and Crete, Limnos, Macedonia, the Salonica Front, the nurses in Salonica in 1916. Hmm. Wow. For the benefit of our listeners, maybe outside Australia and New Zealand, who are the Anzacs? Real quick summary. So the Anzacs are basically, uh, basically Australian New Zealand Army Corps. They were formed in um, Gallipoli. The first Anzac Corps was formed in 1915. And the second Anzac Corps was formed in Greece in um, early April when um, there was a, a speech there by, by um, General Blamey, who was also a commander in Gallipoli in the First World War. Mm-hmm. And he said, as from uh, 1800 hours, the 12th of April, Australian Corps will be designated Anzac Corps. In the making of this announcement, the Anzac Corps desires to say that it has reunion of the Australian New Zealand divisions, give all ranks the greatest uplift. The task ahead, though difficult, is not nearly so desperate as that which our fathers faced in April 26 years ago. We go in together with stout hearts and the certainty of success, even though in the end it was a failure, Mm. like Gallipoli too. So there are many parallels. However, it's about the human stories. It's about the interaction of Australians and Greeks that is the most interesting. And um, I hope we can touch on some of those. Well, before we get into these stories, just quickly on the situation in Greece at that time, the context. Why was Prime Minister Metaxas' response to the Italian ultimatum so important? It really did influence the outcome in the course of that war, didn't it? It did, because all of a sudden, you only had the United Kingdom was um, obviously uh, opposing. Germany had overrun Northern Europe in a matter of days and weeks. But here you had the first defeat of the Axis powers. Yeah. The Oichi and the Greek defence and pushback of the Italians and the defeat of the Italians in Epirus and in, in pushed back all the way to Albania, that was their first defeat. So mm. something that should have been simple for an industrial superpower of the time to get rid of a, a backward agrarian nation, really, that's what Greece was, mm. didn't result. And then Germany had to come down. They had to come down and wipe the mess. That took resources. That took supplies, people. It took a lot of things. And Greece is fighting Germany and Italy from October the 28th, 1940, all the way to the 1st of June. Then the, the Greeks are still fighting. Yeah. The guerrilla fighters and the, and the civilian population, the first time the Nazis encountered civilian resistance of scale was in Greece, mm. where 
men, women and children and all men, they defended their place. This was liberty. They just got liberty, you know, from the Turks in the early parts of the mm. 20th century. Mm. And 30 odd years later, they were losing it again. And they were having none of it. Mm. And that's why you can call them crazy. You can call them fearless. You can call them whatever you want. And they paid the price. They lost 10% of their population. But they stood up and they, and they defended themselves. Mm-hmm. And what that did, that sucked up the resources. It delayed the eventual invasion of Russia. And that's why Stalin, that's why the Russian general talks about those things in the quotes, because it sucked up so, much, so many resources and delayed the invasion of Russia into the Russian winter mm-hmm. and gave time for the Russians and... Like it happened to Napoleon, it happened to Hitler. Yeah. Mm. The Russian so that was winter. Operation Barbarossa, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, Operation Barbarossa yeah. was the Russian campaign. Operation Marita was the Greek campaign. Mm. And Operation Mercury was the Battle of Crete, the Crete mm. campaign. Right. Okay. And that's why we identify Greece and Crete, even though Crete obviously is part of Greece, we identify them as separate campaigns. And it was a separate battle and a separate type of battle. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So as we know, the, the delay of taking on Russia, the Germans literally froze to death. And that was the yeah. turning point of the war. Yeah. So essentially, if it wasn't for the Greeks delaying the Germans or putting such a big fight up to the Germans, it delayed them going yeah. into Russia, which eventually turned yeah, it was, the tide it was the in Greeks. World War II. It was the Greeks. It was the Anzacs. It was the Commonwealth soldiers, the British. They, yeah, sure, they, they were defeated mm. there. But, and it was the Greek people. It was a collection of all those things, of people that believe in freedom, do not believe in, in subjugation by, by conquest, and, and they stood up to it. The time it took for certain Northern European countries to capitulate. You and I, Nick, have discussed this previously in one of our discussions. Mm, one of many. How long did it actually take, for example, for the Germans to overrun the French versus how long I, it took? I think it was about eight days. Eight days versus something like... Well, the Battle of Crete was 11. And Crete's just one island in Greece. Yeah, and, and, and to overrun Greece, it started on the 6th of April and um, into May. And is that the longest resistance during the war? Yeah. I mean, there was resistance later in, in Russia, obviously. But at that time, it was all downhill. After Greece and Crete, it was all downhill for the Germans. Mm-hmm. Downhill. Just think about the Battle of Greece and the Battle of Crete as a Thermopylae. It's like that, you know, so the battles are lost, yeah. but the war is won, eventually. Yeah. 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 Well, now that you mentioned that, Nick, you've got a bit of a story here. This is gonna lead us into the plethora of stories that we've got, the mm. lesser known stories from World War II, but Nick, Hill 731, this is a story that you know fairly well. Tell us a little bit about, about that, because you've mentioned it to me previously yeah. as a modern-day Thermopylae. It was, uh, it was in uh, Mount uh, Trebuchet in Albania. So it was, only, it was a battle that went from the 9th of March to the 24th of March. It didn't go for too long. But what it was, as Nick pointed out, the, the Greeks pushed the Italians back to southern Albania, and they dug in. The Italians were obviously humiliated, and Mussolini himself wanted to impress Hitler, so he needed to win this particular battle. So... He essentially had all his high-powered, ranked troops in Albania. Even Mussolini himself went into uh, Albania on the 2nd of March to watch this battle, which uh, started on the 9th. And it was described as the, the Verdun of the Greco-Italian War. And also it was referred to the Thermopylae that didn't fall, So, to your point. So the, the way this battle started, uh, the Italians had 190 planes. 70 of those were bombers. And they bombed the, the Greek line, which was 
the main part of the there was a six kilometer range and the main part of that range was hill 731 so 731 is the, the meters above sea level right. of this hill so they bombed it from the evening of the 8th of march uh or the late evening to the early morning of the 9th of uh, march and then once that stopped they had 300 cannons and some of those cannons were about a, a meter apart and they Again, I had to read this over and over. It was 100,000 shells they fired at the Greek line. 100,000 shells? Again, call it approximate. I'd read others was 150, 200, but I think the last transcript I read was 100,000, and we're being uh, generous. Whatever it was, even if it was 10,000, it sounds a lot. But yeah, absolutely. 100,000, even if some of them were duds. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so that, that started at 6 a.m. And then from then on, the, the troops started to uh, march through. And the Italians thought the Greeks would be dead. No one would have survived that barrage. However, they dug themselves so deep that yeah, not all of them died. There was, mm. was a lot of Greeks. And as we know, the Greeks were heavily outnumbered. Uh, we had poor weapons. And the first battle started where the, the Italians started charging up this hill. And the Greeks were using their uh, old weapons. I think most of them were still World War I weapons. The Italians were gaining on them, gaining on them, and the Greeks realised these weapons weren't doing anything. So they had fixed bayonets. I thought, you know what, let's go. And they just charged at the Italians, coming heavily outnumbered, charged at the Italians, and then they pushed them back. And this went on and on and on. The Greeks had the, the 1st Thessaly Infantry Division, and most of those troops from Tricala and Karditsa. Right. where the Italians had the 8th Army Corp and two elite blackshirt battalions and other divisions as reserves. So, again, they were heavily outnumbered, heavily outgunned. However, the Greeks did not take a backward step from the 18 raids that the Italians charged up on that hill and along that 6-kilometre stretch. And some of those battles, or some of those charges, like it ended up being hand-to-hand -hand combat where Greeks were using rocks and the butts of guns and, and bayonets as well, just to, to draw back the Italians. And there's a couple of uh, generals. There was uh, uh, Major Dimitrios Gaslas, and he had his two lieutenant colonels up there, Ketsias and Georgiulis. There was words to the effect was, we're all going to die up here, is what they told their generals, and they told all their soldiers, they go, we're not moving from this spot, we're all going to die up here. So, and they had to fight to their death, which, again, sounds like Thermopylae. You know, they weren't going to give up uh, an inch of their land anymore, and they stuck to it. And this battle went on and on and on to the point there was uh, a lot of manuscripts written by the Italian soldiers as well. And they said one of the assaults, they described it as a uh, counterattack of the beasts. This is how ferocious the Greeks were. And there was another story as well where a white flag was raised and the Italian Catholic priests went up and stretcher bearers uh, went up to take, you know, the, the wounded. And when they got to the hill, they could just see limbs and guns and screaming in uh, agony how humans can be so cruel to each other. And the Greeks and the stench, they described what the stench was. It was just a putrid smell of human dead flesh. And there was a big cheer because the, the, the wind had changed and it was blowing away from the, the Greek section to the Italian section. And the Greeks had a big roar because they, you know, had enough of smelling this stench, and it, and it was going towards the Italian soldiers. But that was just the, the resilience of the, the Greek soldiers. You know, they didn't give up, didn't give an inch, even to the 19th of March, which was the last raid where the, the Italians had four tanks come up. So we can't 
there's no other way of defeating these guys. So a couple of tanks rolled up. And again, Greeks, same thing. They they got pushed back a little bit, but then they they regathered, they regrouped, and they counterattacked. Guys like uh, Yorgos Tsavas, who uh, I believe ran into one tank and threw a couple of grenades and blew up that tank and so forth. So they ended up defeating this tank regiment with these primitive weapons and so forth. That war ended on the 26th of March, which essentially broke the the Italians' uh, morale and spirit, and they retreated, and, and that was another reason why Hitler had to come in, take over. Again, I'm not doing this story any justice, but just a just snippet of, you know, the, the heroic fighters. It's just one of many stories that, that there are from this period of history, and uh, again, we're going to hear some other stories right now that are sort of lesser known as well. Not necessarily battles. These are more personal stories. Yeah. Nick, well done on your research, by the way. That was, uh, that was outstanding. Oh, you've thank done, you, mate. You've done well. <laughs> well before we get into these, uh, these other stories... I'm going to shut it to you, bro, Tom. Well, I was just going to say, Nick, what should we be drinking next? Oh, we just stay on the uh, barrelized uh, Chipotle. Should we go to the barrelized? Good stuff. Yeah, because well, the next, it's the next story Ipiro, is it? there. It's in, it's in Kozani. It's in that region of Macedonia, and um, maybe we stay there for a little while. So this is an Anzac and his flag, isn't it? That's right, yeah. So Reginald Trezise from Melbourne... From Victoria, he um, he's in sounds the, good. He's in Kozani, <laughs> and um, I'm going to read straight out of the National Archives. He writes a letter okay. and tells the story to the mayor of Kozani sure. after the war. Okay, and the letter is in the National Archives mm-hmm. because it, it was a letter around military uh, history or yep. events, and it was censored by the Australian government. It's in the National Archives. And okay. He writes the mayor of Kozani and he says, Dear sir, just 18 years ago, almost to this very day, Australian troops were in Greece in the futile struggle with the Nazis for the freedom of your beautiful and historic country. With the 6th Australian Division, I was up as far as Florida, where we met the Germans. We landed at Piraeus, went north by truck, Thebes, Livadia, Amphisa, Lamia, Farsala, Larissa, Elason, Servia, all through the paths and up through the Aliakmon River to Platia and up the mountains to Florina where we quickly were driven back. On the 13th of April, some of us sheltered in Kozani. We found a school to stop at the night. It was cold and wet. The Germans were shelling, bombing all the while via Grevena. So he's talking about all these towns that he remembers vividly mm. in his letter to the mayor of Kozani. And we came south, and now here it was in this school where I mentioned, badly damaged, bombed. I remember a statue at the entrance was blown over the school. It had two floors, and on the bottom floor there was a room, and books, and a musical bugle, and the like. And amidst all the rubble and the dust, standing in the corner of this room, attached to a pole, about seven foot long, stood the flag of Greece, made of silk and surrounded with gilt, corded, edging, To me, this flag looked proud and defiant, and I didn't topple over in the dust and disorder caused by war. So I took it from its pole and placed it in my haversack. The Germans, only a matter of time, who knows what they would have done to it. They would have sold it off or taken it. I thought they would send it home as a souvenir, but I had it. We had a hard day's fighting and evasion, and we finally crossed the Corinth Canal and down through the Peloponnese. We crossed the river, Southeast, the Aliakmon, and down the Peloponnese. Finally, I embarked at Monevasia on a British destroyer and went to Crete, where the war opened up for, with greater ferocity than ever. And I lost everything I had 
but I still had this Greek flag. Wrapping it around my body to keep me warm. The only thing that came out of Crete was my life and the flag. Then I went to Egypt and Palestine and I fought the Vichy French, which these were the, the Nazi French in Syria. And I noticed, the, I showed the flag to the Turkish soldiers and the Syrians and they wanted to buy it, but no, I returned to Australia with it. I refitted, trained hard, and this time I went again and the Greek flag was my emblem, my good luck. I carried it in my kit bag through the Pacific campaign through New Guinea, and all these years have passed, and I find the flag of Greece, safely preserved as proud, defined as ever, and an Australian soldier who has faith in it. And faith in Greece, as a staunch ally of the Western democracies, and especially of our British Commonwealth, wishes to return the proud flag to its old school. For scores of men and women who were children in the faithful days must have known this particular flag. Sir, so as the flag will not go astray, and so that it will be returned to its rightful place, I will not send it until I hear from you. Backward glances over travel roads in Greece brings to my mind a kindly, gracious people who shared with us their food, their shelter, ever helpful to us. So we should get away safely, risking their lives for our advantage Many of our men lie there today beside yours in what we believe was a just cause. Once again, we must be prepared and stick together for we have won our freedom and it's hard. As the forces of evil and, so, and subjugation on the march will enclose a small, I enclose you a small sketch map and which I've drawn of the school and I've printed on this letter so they they who may be deciphered or translated will have no trouble with the English language can find it. Please let me know if you receive this note and how to send the flag back. Greetings to the warm-hearted people of your country and its brave soldiers from the members of the IF, yours sincerely, Reg Trezise. And there's a map. So you can see wow. the feeling and the passion of some of the Anzacs in what they believe was a just cause. The mayor wrote to him and the flag went back and they had a ceremony. And Anzac Reginald Trezise was saved by the Greek flag, by its, I suppose, wow. the, the spirit around it and, and the spirit of the people. And he acknowledged that in that uh, letter. What yeah. a story. And then he returned the flag back he to the, the flag. Story. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Did he, did he go to Greece with it or did he? No, he didn't. He, he lived um, his days out on the edge of uh, Melbourne um, in, in an orchard area called Monbolk. Okay. And um, and uh, he passed away later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So he was in Kusani defending the school. Saw the flag yeah. that was in the square. Standing upright in, Standing in the upright. rubbles inside the one of the school rooms. So still rooms. upright. Yeah. The flag yeah. didn't even fall. No. No. So there he, was rubble. There was dust. There was holes. There was catastrophe. Wow. And the Germans were advancing. Yeah. And he took he, it. He went up, took it, put it in his. Yeah. Took that, it all the way. Wow. Kakoda, New Guinea. Wow. Went everywhere. And the thing that really sort of struck me there is that he was made offers to sell it when he had nothing else. Yeah. And he decided no, to hold on that's to it. That's right. Yeah. Unbelievable. This is uh, the human spirit. What you're seeing here, nothing, it doesn't belong to any particular group of people. It belongs to all people. Mm. And, and this is an Australian um, Anzac showing that. And, and the mayor of Gozani had a big ceremony and was so grateful. And, um, and, and, the, and the flag went back. Wouldn't you love to go see that, Nick? 
might have to put on our agenda, Tom. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> if we ever head back over there, it's there. It's there. I think it's in, on display there at the school or in the in the town hall. You know? yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, unbelievable. If we ever do a, a series in Greece, Tom, we'll have to put that on our agenda. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, what a story, Nick! Fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing that. That was awesome. Well, that's a great way to kick it off. Yeah. <laughs> Michael, you've got a few stories as well that you've brought to us. Where did you want to start? As Nick knows, I, uh, before COVID, I was doing a lot of presentations going around talking to people about the Battle of Greece and the Battle of Crete. The last section of my presentation, I'd always say, well, I've just told you one of those untold stories. Mm. I believe very strongly that a, a, a story told is a life lived. We talked about there's so many stories out there that probably get shared around the family table and that's it they, don't, they go no further at the end of the presentations i'll just say anybody got any stories and i have been very very fortunate in some of the stories that i've been told and the the uh, material i've been given access to these stories have never been out there nobody's ever talked about them one of the stories uh, a woman came up and said oh my my uncle my uncle Ross Hamilton Smith, he was in North Africa. He was in North Africa, then, then over to Greece and into Crete. And he was a prolific writer. I've got copies of all these letters, of all these diaries now. There must be 250,000 words that he's written about wow. Greece and Crete and all of these places. Then they, she told me a great story his diary that he'd been keeping since he first enlisted, 1st of January 1940, he lost the diary. Well, he didn't lose the diary. They took the diary off him before they deployed him to Greece. You had to hand in diaries. You had to hand in cameras. They were supposed to be packed up and sent to the kit store in Alexandria. But for some reason, Ross's diary got caught up in the material going over to Greece. So his diary actually stowed away on the ship going over to Greece. Now, it went up into the mountains of Greece, probably under some bully beef tins or something. And Ross Hamilton Smith never knew his diary was there. He started to keep another diary of his times in Greece. In the front of this first diary, he had written, if anybody finds this diary, could you please send it back to my mother, here's her address in Inverell. 1946, he got a letter from a, an Austrian who was serving with the German army in Greece. After wow. the evacuation, they were going through, and I guess they went through the supply dump. This man found Ross Hamilton Smith's diary. Hmm. Unbelievable. They gave me the letters that this man wrote, saying, well, I don't know if Ross lived through the war, but hopefully this will give you some sort of solace having his diary turned and he sent the diary back in 1946 wow and i've been given access to that diary and i mean that diary plus the others and the way he speaks about what he did in north africa certainly but then when he went into greece and crete he he describes it with such detail and once again he as nick was saying he talks about the greek people he talks about the Cretan people how mm. how they helped and how beautiful the country was I think in, in at one point he says oh 
this is just like home if I can ever get back there. Um, and it's, it's, it's just lines like that. And your heart sort of goes, whoa. You know, he, he tells stories where you, your heart beats fast. He tells stories when a tear comes to your eye. He tells stories when you, you have a laugh. Yeah. Because he's with his mates. To have that diary returned from Greece is pretty, pretty, bloody, pretty special. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And that was returned by a German soldier, well, an Austrian, mm. uh, an Austrian soldier. And I've by got the all the, the letters, yeah, by the enemy. Yeah. And he'd found it and kept it from 1941. Unbelievable. And taken it back with him to Germany. What a story. Are these sentiments of, you know, where we feel as though we're at home or we're enamored of the, the Greek people, are these across the board? I think it's an underlying theme or it's a, a theme that ties any of the readings that you do, even in the official war diaries kept by the battalions. You'll, you'll note things like that. They, they talk about movement, troop movements and things like that, but then they talk about, oh, the beautiful snow-capped mountains mm. um, and looking back, looking back down through the valleys and the gorges. And they do. They, even the official diaries speak about that. But personal diaries are more about their interaction with the people. Ross's diaries, as I say, they're just, he was a prolific writer. He starts off with a letter to his brother by saying, well, what we copped in Crete was nobody's business. Mm. I mean, it's the, the impact of his letters and uh, what he says sometimes really, you can actually, you can feel it coming through the lines in the page. Wow. So, and another diary that I've come across, yeah, um, which is a, a very, very unusual diary. It was a, a, a diary kept by a, a, pl- a platoon sergeant a leader of the seventh, the second seventh battalion, and he kept a, a diary of the people in his platoon. Now, I don't think other platoon leaders did that. So mm. we're talking about a diary of uh, details on thirty men. In that, okay, you'd expect things like perhaps uh, religion, things like that, to be recorded. But this man recorded uh, the hat sizes the waste, their schooling, their brothers and sisters. He recorded so many details that seemed unnecessary. Uh, and with each of the records, he placed a, a candid photograph, not a, not a photograph taken by uh, when they enlisted or anything like that, but a, a photograph taken, it looks like, while they were on duty. Yeah, what on a duty. resource to have. Hmm. And this sort of thing, you know, the, the diary's completely fallen apart and nobody will get to see it. I don't think anybody will get to see it, but I was fortunate enough to get it copied. To go to that trouble, he must have cared yeah. so much about his men. Wow, another great story there, Michael. Now, Nick, General Paul Cullen, what can you tell us about uh, General Paul? So General Paul Cullen was originally called Paul Cohen. Right. He's a Jewish Australian. He was the son of Sir Samuel Cullen, who was the Honorary Consul General of Greece in Newcastle in the early 1900s. Right. Okay. So there's a connection there with a family being an Honorary Consul General, his father. So Paul Cullen uh, enlisted. He fought in North Africa, promoted to major, second command by the time he arrived in Greece. In Greece, what he did very very cleverly, he converted much of the battalion's cash into gold, Mm. which was really good for obtaining rations and support from the local population during the withdrawal of the creek. And he managed to survive the Battle of Tempe. Now, Tempe is up on the the slopes of Mount Olympus, 
Right. And, and also we have a Tempe here in Sydney. Yes, we do. I was going to say, it's like just down the road here. <laughs> yeah. The Vale of Tempe. <laughs> Where Harry's Cafe is. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the Vale of Tempe, a machine content. gun fire pierced his uniform, but he survived. Mm. So, and then he led his men over the freezing mountains. And about five of them got on a small boat and they arrived in Chios. Because he was encircled by the Nazis. And they decided to leave on a boat and they went to Chios. And they could have just gone very quickly to Turkey, a mm. neutral country. They would have got off and that was the end of it. But this guy was no, he was, he was a fearless warrior. And he decided, you know, we're going to turn back and we're going to go to Crete and join the rest of the Anzac formation there. Wow. And so he managed to get off Chios. He got dropped off at uh, Skiathos and stranded there. Paul Cohen... And his men, they needed money, they needed to get to Crete somehow. So he looked around and he found this little branch of the Ionian bank. Very confident, he walked in and he, he went to the manager and he said, I want to cash a check in. But sir, you don't have an account with us. He says, but I have an account with a commercial company of Sydney. At that point he said, can I see the check, sir? He says, I don't have it on me. And with, with that, they both started laughing. <laughs> right. behind Paul Cohen was a Greek gentleman in the queue and he heard the discussion his name was Kyrios Limos George Limos and he says of course he can have the cheque I'll endorse it and with that he got 300 pounds supported by Mr Limos got the money wow. got a boat got his men, got them to Crete. Wow. After the war, Paul Cohen, at this point, yes. returned the money to him. I'm kidding. On Crete, he led the 16th Composite Brigades. He went to Malaman. He was ready and ready to go, but all of a sudden there was an order for withdrawal. And he recalled after the war, I've always been mystified as why we were not used at Malaman. But there's no doubt that our 443 men of the 16th Composite Brigade would have turned the tide at Malame, on which the whole campaign hinged. For if Malame had been held, the Germans could have abandoned the invasion of Crete. Cullen had an impulsive heroism. That, that was his nature. And it was best captured when he was evacuated from Crete. When his unit's last boat got stuck in the sand, Cullen jumped off, he pushed the boat, and he was left stranded on the beach. They threw a rope at him. He caught the rope and he was dragged back as the Germans were firing at him. Hmm. Nobody came closer to capture by the Germans than Paul Cullen. His observation in Greece, this is what happened to him. His observation in Greece, the German attitude towards the Jewish people, led him to officially change his name from Cohen to Cullen in September 1941. As a precaution, of ever being captured by the Germans. His brother and his relatives in the UK also changed the name from Cullen to Cullen. After Greece and Crete, he served with great distinction in Kokoda, was awarded a Distinguished Service Order, which is a very high, one of the highest awards. And he also got a second one um, at uh, Wewak, commanding the 2nd 1st Battalion in 1946. So there we have a famous Australian of Jewish heritage fighting in Greece and having been influenced in changing his name from the Germans' attitudes to Jewish people in Greece. Wow. 
Hmm. And um, he was he went on and he and he was um, also he was awarded the Order of Australia and um, highly decorated officer, General hmm. Paul Cohen. The story. Paul Cohen. And getting a loan from uh, George in Hills. Yeah, yeah. The guy behind him in the yeah. queue at the bank. Yeah, that's that was the difference. And um, you know, and and he 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 repaid the money back. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Filotimo both ways. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Unbelievable. There you go. Amazing story. Oh, at that point, we are in Crete now. And with that, let's have a Cretan Tsikudya. That's a good idea, actually. So we do have a, uh, a Tsikudya here, as, a, as Nick says, which is... Again, like, it's Crete Araiki. is the brand. Um, it's a commercial grade. Uh, it's uh, made in, um, in, Iraq, in the Iraklion region. And mm. um, again... Good stuff. And it's imported Fantastic. to Australia, I think, by, um, I think by uh, Vicky uh, Tirnavos uh, Imports in uh, Melbourne. Fantastic. Great. Well, with that, Jeez, Stiniamas, Stiniamas. Stiniamas. welcome to Crete. Welcome Viva. to Crete. That's it. Lenis Crete. <laughs> Viva. Viva Crete. Oh, yeah. Mm. Tastes like Crete. <laughs> Bring back I'll a few memories there, there Michael. Back there soon. <laughs> Well, we're in great. Well, now, now that we now that we've butted you up, Michael, no, we, we, no, no, I think no, you, need, just, you need another see, story. Nick, Nick was talking about um, an Australian of Jewish heritage, but here's some something that I came across while I was doing the research, which will probably be quite surprising to many of the listeners. Hmm. I found a Japanese serviceman, a man hmm. of born of Japanese parents in Australia. Mm-hmm full-blooded Japanese who wanted to enlist and fight for Australia. Mm. He lived in uh, Ballarat, I think, in Ballarat. He tried to enlist. They knocked him back. He tried again. They knocked him back. Is this before Japan entered the war? Before Japan entered the war. Before Japan entered the war. But you had to be um, of European descent to be able to enlist. Mm, Okay. He went to Melbourne and was able to enlist. His name was Mario Takasuki. Hmm. Now, where did he get that first name from? <laughs> I don't know. He was born in Australia, but to Japanese parents. So I'm, I'm guessing that his parents didn't speak English and yeah. they thought they'd give him a good Australian name and all the people around were called Mario. So they thought that'd be a good <laughs> name. So they called him Mario. But Mario Takasuka went to Greece and Crete and fought with distinction there and then went on to New Guinea to fight against the Japanese. Wow. But fighting in Greece and Crete. He escaped from uh, Heraklion in a small boat with uh, members of his section, his anti-aircraft section. So when we're talking about uh, an Australian of Jewish descent, we have an Australian of Japanese descent. Mm. Um, His brother had been interned, but because he was fighting, his uh, mother also had been interned, but um, because of letters from the commanders, they let her out of the internment camp. Wow. So, mm. so the challenges that Mario had in enlisting, did that come down to, to racism? Oh, it, yeah. It well, was, it was race, a... I, don't, I don't know if it... It was the, the rule. So that you would, had to okay. be, uh, what did they say, mainly of European descent yeah, right. to be able to enlist. Okay. And Didn't I think that's where some people... Um, ran into trouble when they wanted to fight. Uh, On that point, also, you've got from South Australia, if you look at some of the names of the Australians who went to fight in Greece and Crete, many of them uh, were of German descent. Right. 
and many of them were captured. And what they would have copped in POW camp, just couldn't imagine. Mm. Yeah. A German of German descent, yeah. how would have the Australians felt about it? How would have the Germans felt about it? Mm. They would have got it from both sides, yeah, I think, cool. in many cases. I... German shooting Germans. So, it's like Australians fighting for Germany then. Well, yeah. that's, that's what it's like. And, yeah, I, and it's crazy. I'm, I mean that even in the, um, in the service records, you'll see that there were a number of the servicemen of German heritage, uh, they have a little note, committed suicide. Wow. Is that uh, right? In POW camp, but, mm. well, we don't know how mm. that goes. Okay. So did Mario escape? You said he escaped and he came back to Australia? Oh, yeah, he, he came back. So he, he came survived. back to Australia. His, yeah. his family was uh, involved in the rice, in setting up the rice industry. In mm. Australia, I think it's uh, sun, sun, sunrise. Uh, not sunrise. No, there's another. <laughs> there's another special. Oh, anyway, one of the rice countries. One of the rice. One of the rice countries. But <laughs> yeah. his uh, his father set that up and wow. um, yeah, introduced a special type of rice farming in Australia. Wow, um, very interesting. So, um, Nick and I were talking. I, Nick wants to speak about um, a uh, a gentleman with. Greek heritage who fought. Yeah. Okay. And just as a brief introduction to that, I, as part of the, the work on the nominal role, I've been looking for Australians of Greek heritage yes. who fought in Greece and Crete. Mm -hmm. You, Gilchrist, as I've already mentioned, in 2004, uh, had seven, seven names confirmed of Greeks, uh, Greek heritage who fought in Greece or Crete. I've been able to pick up quite a few more, well, another five or six right. so far. Uh, I think that, um, as was pointed out before, that well over 2,000 men and women of Greek heritage served in the armed forces. Mm. But what records that exist now leave a lot to be desired, sure. I'm afraid. And there's probably many Australians of Greek heritage that we may never find out about. I think with name changes, uh, places of birth, mm. Um, when we look at Cairo, Alexandria, uh, Cyprus, yep. um, that there are many people of Greek heritage that we may never be able to uncover, but perhaps the listeners may be able to add something to the list that um, we've compiled of Australians of Greek heritage who did actually embark to Greece and to Crete. You'll have to excuse my pronunciation, even though I've spent a lot of time in Greece and Crete, my Pronunciation of names is... <laughs> we I, I won't, won't hold I it won't, against you. Okay. Yeah, but there will be people out there who do. I'm a, <laughs> especially please, if it's their name. Um, please so, give Michael a, a, a whole pass here, guys. But, but because some of them are name changes. Right, okay. So I can get those quite easily. <laughs> no now, problem. We have a, a James Ambrose. We have a Constantine Araroni, mm -hmm. who Nick will talk about soon. We have a George John Kaling. A... Constantine, Constantine. So I think they called him Con Constantine. Maybe Cypriot. Uh, Chris, Chris Darkus Daniels. Chris Darkus Daniels. We've got Michael Doulis. Uh, Lionel Victor Gattis. Dennis Karangis. Nicholas Paniotti. Mm. Anastasios Stathopoulos. Anastathios Stathopoulos. Mm. Yeah, and here's a good one for me. This is easy. John William Turanaros. Okay. We've got Harris Basilio mm -hmm. 
And finally, we've got James Zampiles. You've done very well, Michael. You've done very well. <laughs> Look, I'm sure girl. there's. I'm sure you there's more. You deserve a drink. Absolutely, give <laughs> I'm that sure man there's in more, Europe. But, but I, as I, I spoke to Nick about this, that I was looking into these these uh, people of Greek heritage, and I, I said in in the 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 upcoming book, I'm going to put a little a short chapter in there about um, about these people, and I'm going to entitle it for kings and for countries. Yeah. So they were fighting for. Two kings and for two countries. Mm, so, fantastic. Nice. Well, on that note, Nick, tell us about Constantine Aroni. So Constantine Aroni has a, a rare place in Australian history. Uh, there, there are not many of these rare people and that, uh, that they were dual Anzacs. Mm. So today we, we use the word Anzac to label, Anzac Day to label a lot of things. But there are only two Anzac Corps, and that's Gallipoli, first Anzac Corps, and Greece, Crete, second. Constantine Aroni was born in Kithara in 1893. He was the son of Peter Aroni, and at the turn of the 20th century, he came to Australia and was living in Melbourne. He was involved in both world wars, enlisting in 1915 at the age of 20 years of age in Gallipoli, and then on to France. And I have here the transcripts from the National Archives again which talk about his service record, and it says 30th of the 8th, 15, proceeded to Gallipoli, Anzac. He's fighting there, then he gets sick, and then he goes, still Anzac, 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 hospital, Malta, then Egypt, and then he goes, gets better, and then he goes, France, Belgium, Stapels, Camiers, France, England, Portsmouth in England. So he goes through all those theatres of the First World War. Wow, it's like an Australian backpacker. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and so, so he, he he serves there, and wow. By 1940, he enlists again, 1939, and um, he went to the uh, Second Imperial Force, and he he fought in in uh, Syria, Palestine, North Africa, and onto the Anzac campaign in Greece and Crete. While serving in Greece, his cultural background, his Greek background, was really valuable. He had knowledge of the Greek language and the customs. And after they, they were overrun in the, in the mainland and he was in the Peloponnese, he, he managed to escape to Crete an open boat, taking 23 soldiers with him. He managed to negotiate in the Greek language, got the boat with the help of the Greeks onto Crete. And for that feat, he was awarded the British Empire Medal. This is, this is a, a very uh, courageous man. Um, he's uh, buried in Melbourne. Mm. He has, he's had no children, his life, and there he is. And it's all part of the Australian story. Not much is known about him, but what we do know is that um, he served in both Anzac campaigns, number one and number two. Wow. Well, there's a name we're not going to forget in a hurry, are we? Constantine Aroni, 42 World Wars, survived. You just think about that, Nick. To be in that many theatres of war across two world wars. Yeah. It is unbelievable to go through both of those and to be active in both of those. Mm. And then to, to end up in, your, in the land of your cultural heritage as well. Yeah. yeah. That's mind-boggling. What a so, story. So on to that, I've been doing some research over the last uh, few months. I've been cataloguing all the war memorials in New South Wales that refer to Anzacs in Greece. And my research has revealed about between four and six Australians... Mm-hmm. that fought in um, the First World War 
on Lemnos, through Lemnos onto Gallipoli, and they were killed in the Second World War in Greece. So that there, there's again dual World War One, World War Two, but they lost their life in Greece. They were at the age of fifty, the age of forty, in their forties when they went to Greece in the Second World War. Wow! So they enlisted in the Australian Army at forty and fifty. Yeah, years of just age. just at that point. So they'd already been at the age of eighteen in uh, nineteen fifteen in France and and um, and Gallipoli, and um, and then by the time the Second World War started, there was one of them that was fifty years of age. He was a he was a, a major and he was also a surgeon. Wow. So there's a lot of those very nuances that are coming through. Think mm. of the level of sacrifice you'd need yeah. to make to say, I've served in one world war. I've managed to come back. The Great War. Yeah. The Great War. Yeah, the first one. The war, yeah. And, and to, to your knowledge, this was the war to end all wars. And then all of a sudden, some 20 odd years later, yeah. you're getting the itch again to go back. Yeah. And you're not young. You're in your late yeah. 40s. Yeah, 50. 50. Yeah, and I know what 50. that feels like. I struggle to get out of bed. Yeah. yeah. And these guys are <laughs> fighting. They're, they're different times. Mm-hmm. Different times. They're the self-sacrifice. Very much so. They're, they, it's a different um, period, different generation. Why don't we know these stories better? Why aren't these stories look, being told? Look, it's uh, it's look, unbelievable. Yeah. The thing is that um, in today's information age, we think there is... A great opportunity to find these, but there's also great distraction. Mm. Yep. And this country is still finding its way. Good point. It's trying, hopefully we'll talk about uh, Captain Reginald Saunders later, uh, an Aboriginal Indigenous Australian that served in Greece and Crete. Well, let's talk about Reginald. Yeah, we Reginald can talk now. about him now. And he's, so, he's been in the news lately. Yeah, so... so, so, so a, there's a metro named after him at Pitt Street. That's right. Yeah, that's he's right. got he's a station now. named after him. Well, that, that's a great achievement. There's also, in, ni- in um, 2015, there is a courtyard and a room called the Reginald Saunders Gallery in the Australian War Memorial. There is no room or no space named after any Australian who has served overseas mm-hmm. in the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, but there is a Reginald Saunders Gallery and a Reginald mm-hmm. Saunders Courtyard. This is a very significant Australian. Mm. This is an Australian who had no right to vote. This is an Australian who had no right to drink Mm. or to go in places where European or white Australians did. But he didn't care. He had a heritage in his family of his of his of his uh, his father and his and his uncles uh, that that actually served and, and Indigenous Australians did serve in the First World War. And him and his brother, they enlisted. And Reginald Saunders was in Greece and then he was in Crete. And he was on the run in Crete for nearly a year. Mm. So this is an Australian Anzac with very dark skin. And if the Germans saw him, he he would have stood a mile away. He wasn't a Patrick Lee Firmer that could put a moustache on and some Cretan Vrakis and get away with it. (laughs) He He was hard. Yeah. But the Cretans, they saw a human being. They saw a, a man that needed support, that needed help, and they helped him. And they risked their lives. In the, in the village of Labini in Rethymno, they risked their lives and they supported him. He eventually got off after a year. He went on to fight in, um, in New Guinea and he also fought in Korea. Wow. Wow. Captain Reginald Saunders, an Australian, Indigenous Australian. 
And I met his family um, at North Bondi RSL about 10 years ago. They approached me with um, a, one of the famous battles in Crete, the Battle of 42nd Street, and they wanted to do a, a memorial there. I got behind them with them and worked with them, and they drove it together with uh, Michael Sweet and the Mayor of Kenya, the Cretan Associations here in Victoria and in New South Wales, and there's a memorial at the Battle of 42nd Street, where Captain Reginald Saunders, an Indigenous Australian forward, as well as the Maori Battalion, where they did the haka, and wow. they had one of their great victories there. I read that. Actually, I think it was yeah. my brother told me the story. He read it in a German diary where there was a young German soldier in Crete, and at night he wrote in the, in the diary where he was, he was scared, and he goes, I'm really scared. I'm hearing all these weird noises from the opposition, and... They sound like savages. And it was the, the New Zealand Maoris doing a haka. And these Germans had never heard it before. Yeah. And, and it they were shitting themselves. Hand-to-hand battle, hand-to-hand combat with uh, bayonets. So Reginald Saunders, there, there's a great book that was written in 1960 by Harry Gordon. Harry Gordon passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. He was um, working for News Limited, I think. But he was a journalist and he came across... Um, Reginald Saunders, and he wrote this book called The Embarrassing Australian, the story of an Aboriginal warrior. Why is he an embarrassing Australian? Because nobody would look at him, you know, on the buses, on the trains. In the army, everybody looked at him Mm. because it didn't matter what the colour of your skin was, you needed somebody to look after your back. It didn't matter what it was. And this man, this man became a captain eventually, and he, he looked after his co-Anzacs, you know, and they all supported each other as brothers. Just for those who maybe don't know their Australian history and uh, our listeners outside of Australia, I don't think it was until 1967 that Indigenous Australians actually got the right to vote. That's correct. And in the Australian Constitution, we were actually classified as fauna. Correct. In this country. Correct. In their own country. Yeah. That was 1967. That's right. That's not long ago. That's 26 years after the escape and the evading, evading of Captain yep. Reginald Saunders on the island of Crete. And here's Reginald Saunders yeah, so he's fought, enlisting to his, fight. His, his parents, his, his family has fought in the First World War. His brother gets killed in the Second World War in New Guinea, Harold Saunders. And he goes on to Korea. And that's the only place he really found that he was a worthy Australian. He just got on with it. Mm. But beyond that... Though he was also president of the St Mary's RSL Club in the early 1960s, which was really an advance because of the respect and the honour of the man. And this is why, in this age, where Australia is still trying to find itself with its first people, it's trying to find its history. It has found this, this amazing individual. And that's why the gallery, the courtyard, and now, as you say... At the Australian War Memorial, and now you're saying a station yeah, in Pitt Sydney. Street. So I guess when that opens up, are we all going to end up at that station one day? Well, I think we'll I have think, to. I think all it's Greeks, all Australians of Greek heritage, should turn up at the station. Absolutely. On, on that day, everybody listening, if that is the case, please turn up. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and I think we have to do a toast. Yeah. Tick with oh. to Reginald Saunders. Absolutely. To Reginald Saunders. Yamas. And he says, of all the Cretan peasants, the most impressive I met 
was a, com- a woman called Vasilichi Zaharachi. Even I love puts the, the CHs, the CHs, <laughs> and CHs in here. It's not yeah. Vasiliki, it's Vasiliki. How good is that? Saunders, <laughs> she was about 35 with classical features and magnificent, magnificent flashing eyes. She walked straight as a gun barrel and encouraged the match. Her husband was a little man, a rank coward, <laughs> and her brother, Castelli, was a member of the Greek Evzonis, wow. the blokes with the little frilly skirts. This is what he describes to this woman and the, and the Saunders family, the daughters went back with their children and they met Areti, the daughter of Vasiliki, who was also involved, the kids were involved in harboring and supporting Reginald Saunders. And they went back and through that connection and through that story, it's an amazing thing when you see the connections when the daughters of Reginald Saunders meet Areti and her brother it's a very emotional scene, you know. So, so um, they you know, you've got themes there. You've got indigenous Anzac yep. racism, um, support in the military, escapers and invaders. There's a there's a great story there. Well, we're just glad that he's getting the recognition that he deserves now. And this is this is one story out of all the ones that we're talking about now that is getting some recognition now. We're just yeah. so happy that that's yeah. the case. Just on that point, when we're talking about the support. That people were given. The, the people were given there. Um, here's a, a letter somebody gave to me from that their father had written back to somebody in, well, from Tasmania back to Greece. Mm-hmm. And he said, It's difficult to begin this letter as I feel so ashamed I have not answered your letters and the card which I received from you early in the year. However, when you know all, you will probably forgive me and still be my friend as I shall never forget the days in your village and your assistance to us. I mean, just the connections yeah. that people maintained after with the, the Greek and the Cretan people. It really is a recurring theme, isn't it? Very much so. The, the themes, those recurring themes of friendship, they run through yeah. all of it. And I mean, Cret- so. Cretans at the best of time. Let's, you know, let's be honest. There's, there's two sides to, to, to Cretans. There's, there's the one side where people think they're mad... <laughs> In Greece. But then there's the other side. (laughs) I don't know. Nick, are they? Well, I'll I'll give you what Sir Anthony Beaver says. Okay. (laughs) The Cretan character, warlike, proud, compulsive, generous to a friend or a stranger in need. Ferociously unforgiving to an enemy or a traitor. Frugal day by day, but generous in company and celebration. Was, of course, strongly influenced by the landscape of dramatic contrast in which the islanders lived. Rich coastal strips on the north coast, endless olive groves on the foothills, fertile valleys, and all the odd little plains hidden in the highlands, which were overshadowed by the island's main spine of the White Mountains, the Kedros, Mount Wide, Absoluriti, and finally the Lassithi or the Dikti Mountains, all carved and divided by over a hundred steep gorges. Wow. These are people on a terrain, and this is not unique to Crete. This is unique to all of Greece. These people on the terrain of Greece, on the mountains, on the valleys, on the gorges, they are fit people. Mm. They are farmers. They are shepherds. They are wine growers, olive growers. They are doing exercise, and they are in tune, and they are fit. Yeah. So when the Germans come along, they're not going to say no. They're going to say, they're going to say no and they're going to say, you know what, you're not coming here and I'm going to take you on. 
Yeah. And Greece, like we said before, lost 800,000 people. Villages in Crete got burned, decimated, executions, firing squads. But the people continuously resisted. Mm. And they have, and they will, and they will do it again. They will rise again mm-hmm. if anything happens. Yeah. Nick, is it true? I read a story where the paratroopers were, were floating, I guess, into Crete, and you had grandmas with pitchforks attacking these German soldiers, yeah. not taking a backward step. It's all true. So Metaxan, for his famous uh, Then It Shall Be War, was also a dictator. Make no bones, this guy was educated in the military schools of Germany. And was a divisive figure. He was a fascist dictator Mm. who disarmed disarmed the population, disarmed not only the Greek mainland but also the island of Crete so he can control the people. Now, that's why the Cretans came out with pitchforks and spikes, Mm. with axes and shovels and whatever they could get their hands on and clubs because their weapons were taken away from them by the dictatorship of Methaxas. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either. One of the stories that comes up that sort of sums up the two sides to the Cretan sensibility, let's say. You know, there's, yeah. there's the madness, but then there's this philotimo as well. Generosity. This, yeah, yeah, this unbelievable generosity. Yeah. Was the story of uh, General Kripen being being kidnapped. Yeah. Despite the fact that they were kidnapping this German, this Nazi general, there was also a lot of... I mean, they connected during, during the, they the course They did, because before Kraepen, General Kraepen came to Crete, there was a ferocious general before him, Frederick Muller. And they'd already hatched a plan. So, so, so Pat, Patrick Lee Fermer, a British travel writer before the war, travelled all over, had command of Greek, German, English, French... A multitude of languages, a very intelligent man. And he was a spy, basically, for the UK. And he rounded up troops, guerrilla fighters in Crete. And they had a plan to abduct Mullah, the butcher of Crete. What happened is the plan was in plane, everything in train, everything was going well. And then they replaced him with General Kraepen, who wasn't a butcher because he didn't have time to Crete to show us. <laughs> His, his true character, I don't know what he would have done. but mm-hmm. um, uh, So eventually, with Cretan Partizani, Cretan guerrillas, Yorgos Tirakis, Emmanuel Paterakis, Antonios Grigorios Papaleonidas, Michalis Akumianakis, Grigorios Hnarakis, Eftratios Saviolakis, Dimitrios Tzadzadakis, Nikolaos Komis, Antonios Zoidakis, and the famous George Psychundakis, the Cretan runner. Now, these people are not as well known as Patrick Lee Fermer because in the Anglosphere, we want our heroes. But the Greeks have a population of 10 million people and they have their heroes too, but it's not in the Anglosphere. It's in the Greek Hellenic sphere. So some of these people are well known in Greece and they've left their mark. The Cretan run-ups, Hundakis, ultra-marathons, carrying messengers back and forth between the group and the villages ahead. And he was the only one that wrote the account of a partisan account called, and it was called the Cretan Run after the Second World War. Now, they did capture him. They captured mm. General Kraepen, the only general, the only commander in the Second World War captured by civilians or guerrillas with the help of Patrick Lee Fermer, obviously. Right? But leave it to the Cretans to do something they, like they that. They did, because they're crazy, because they're fearless. Mm. Now, some Cretans aren't crazy and fearless, and they knew there'd be repercussions. But they did it. 
And yes, there were repercussions. If you look at Anoya in villages like that, there was a lot of um, repercussions, a lot of executions. As a matter of fact, even Patrick Lee Firmer, whilst he loved Crete, he ended up living in Laconia, in, in the money district, the Peloponnese, mm. because there, there, there was, I wouldn't say a vendetta, but there was a certain amount of the population said, this is crazy, and you led this and all the reprisals that yeah, happened right. on us. But a lot of Cretans supported it, and they mm. did it. And um, they basically um, dressed up in a German uniform. They stopped the general's car on his way out of the Villa Ariadne. Villa Ariadne was built by Sir Arthur Evans, the, f- the famous archaeologist of Knossos. Right. That was his house, and that was wow. taken over as a German headquarters. Okay. They studied him, and he was captured, and there was a three-week trek across the island. 100,000 Italians and Germans occupying Crete, and they couldn't find him. Eventually, they got him off, and he was taken to Germany. In after the Second World War, so Ronnie, what happened? So they they took him off the island. They took and, him off the island. And where did they take him? To to Egypt. To Egypt. Yeah, that's where the headquarters was of the Allied forces, mm. and that's where they took him. So he was a prisoner of war. He until, was a prisoner of war until the end of the war, yeah, and they released that's him. That's right. Yeah. 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 And I believe there's a book about that too. That's right, and the and the book is um, ill met by moonlight, and there was a film made by it by the British, um, Dirk Bogart in the uh, uh, 1950s, mm. uh, with uh, the music by Miki Slodorakis. Mm. Great hey, film. Legend. Absolutely. Yeah, black and white film. Another yeah. famous Cretan. Another famous Cretan. Yeah. So I hope you do a podcast on Miki Slodorakis in the future. We will. We will, yes. we will be. <laughs> you were just saying that after the war, that something happened after oh, the yeah, war. Oh, yeah. So after the war, what happened, Patrick Lee Firmer got together General Cretan and the Cretan guerrillas, and there was this like a, a television this is your lifestyle uh, and yes, it's on I've youtube yeah you know so people are welcome to go and have a look at it and you see the great charisma of patrick lee firma the mastery of the of the languages of greek and english and german and the meeting of the uh, the cretans they were so proud the cretans were so yeah. proud to capture the commander mm. of crete and um, where, and where yeah. was this recorded at it was it uh, it was in the um i think it was one of the uh, the, the television studios in athens in Erth. yes yeah i think it's in Erth, and um and and it's on it's on um, youtube and you can have a look at it in color and uh, yeah. it's an amazing um encounter they captured him you know it's like a, it's like a game we won and then yeah. This is yeah. your life. Let's talk about yeah. it. Yeah, and he came back. Look, he, he appears in the movie and also in the um, in the This Is Your Life Encounter as a man of honour, Kraepin. He obviously, I can't say what he would have done if he was in Crete as a commander for months on with um, with the, the guerrillas continuously occupying, uh, you know, pestering the, the Nazis and the Italians there. I don't know what he would have done. But the story is that um, in the end, when you look at him on that, it's too... He doesn't appear like that butcher that Mullah did. There seemed to be a great level of respect between between yeah. all of them, and they, they were all. I mean, I've I've seen it. There's a lot of backslapping going on. There's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot there, of yeah, there's, there's a lot yeah, of laughing yeah. laughing happening. Look, if you look at the the, the, the guerrilla fighters, they're just normal people. Mm. But for them, this was a big moment. This was a historic moment that they participated in, and they went on TV and they were so proud. Now, George Psikundakis, he wrote the. Um, the Cretan runner, Patrick Lee Firmer, um, um, translated it, and it's the only account of the Crete of the of the resistance of civilian guerrilla resistance in the Second World War. <laughs> yeah, so that's something to look out for if you if people go to Crete, and I encourage all listeners to go to not only to Crete throughout Greece. 
there's a great Australian footprint, an Anzac footprint, a New Zealand footprint, an English footprint, all over Greece. Mm. And you will find the stories of your country, of your people there, from Lemnos to Salonika to Macedonia, all the way down to Tempe, to, to Bralos Pass, where the, the stand was like the, the Thermopylae stand, mm. all the way down through the Corinth and the Peloponnese and into Crete, and into the, some of the islands. There are cemeteries on Rhodes, on, on Crete, on, in Hanyai, in, in Athens. Mm. Uh, Phaliron has got Anzacs buried there, and then the ones that aren't found are on these massive marble monuments, their names are there. They never found over half of the Anzacs in Greece in the Second World War were never found. Their remains were never found. Wow. And all we have is just their names and they're memorialised there. There's a huge connection with Greeks and the Australians, like you said. But uh, from what you said mentioned earlier, I think it was off air, that yeah. the, the Greeks gave presence to the Australians. I think the soil... The soil. So Tell us that yeah. story. Okay, so after the Second World War... They've created a monument in Athens, in the field of Mars, Stalinica. In Greek, I... And there's a monument there of Athena on top of a massive spire. And there's the Australian, English, and, um, and the New Zealand flags. And that's commemorating. And, and Menzies went there for that, right? But what the Greeks did is they had this ancient two and a half thousand years old urn and after the war they got soil from an australian grave in phaliron in athens and they put the soil inside the two and a half thousand year old urn pot what do you want to call it right was it corinthian urn? corinthian urn 500 bc and they gifted it to australia it is the only time that greece has ever gifted its soil to a foreign nation but out of the respect out of the stories, out of, out of the, 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 the defence of Greece that came and the connections is this country gave this museum piece. And this museum piece with the earth from an Australian grave was in the Australian War Memorial in the basement. And Dr Panayotis Diamandis brought it to my attention. This was about 2015, around the centenary of Anzac. And I knew that... Um, at the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, they were going to expand that memorial to somewhere where the original vision was with water and, and soil. And there was a, something that, obviously, because it was done during the Depression in the 1930s, it was cut to a certain point. And in 2018, they opened up the new memorial extension. And I encourage all the listeners in Sydney and from all over Australia and the world, when you come to Sydney, Go and visit this memorial, and you will see a soils a soils exhibition there, of places where the Australians have fought, and they have selected four soils from Greece. They have selected the soil from Vivi when the battle started, near the northern Macedonia region near the border. They selected a soil from Tempe. They selected a soil from Rethymnon in Crete, and they selected a soil from Cape Spada. Now Cape Spada is a cape in Crete. If you look at the map of Crete, it's got like two little peninsulas or horns going out into the Aegean. Mm -hmm. And one of them is, the, is Spada. Now, they picked the soil there because off that was the famous battle of HMAS Sydney, where it sunk the Bartholomew Colioni before it was sunk 
off the coast of Western Australia mm. later on. And they pick that and they take, and those four soils, you can see them at the Anzac Memorial. I saw this vision that they had and I thought, that's awesome, that is fantastic. But I also knew about this museum piece with the soil of an Australian soldier in Canberra in the basement. And I wrote to um, Dr. Brenda Nelson at the time, the director of the Australian War Memorial, and the trustees, and they, the trustees wrote to them, to, to Dr. Brenda Nelson, saying we'd love to have this as part of our exhibition. And I encourage everybody to go and go and see the soils from Greece, but also see this beautiful museum piece, two and a half thousand year old Corinthian urn, which inside it has the soil of an Australian. And that's not the only Greek connection at, at that memorial either, is there? There's a, a Spartan shield, I understand, yeah, there as well. So at the centre of the, the Anzac Memorial in Hyde Park, the founders, the designers, have used the ancient Greek classical theme of the Spartan shield. And you will see there an unknown Anzac, naked, semi-naked, on a Spartan shield, supported by three women, the mother, the wife, and the sister. In Australia's memorials, wherever you go in Australia, you will see classical Greek culture and commemoration. You will see it at the Shrine of Remembrance in Melbourne, which has Doric columns, like the Parthenon. It has a massive spire, and it says Greece Crete on it. On the top of it is a copy of the Lysikrates monument from Athens at the top of the Shrine of Remembrance. So the founders of commemoration in Australia, Australians, were, they were trained in classical Greek. Hmm. They were exposed to Hellenic culture and they've used that in those memorials. And go to Hyde Park from, from the Anzac Memorial, go to the Archibald Fountain dedicated to Australians yeah. in France by, by Archibald. And what does it use? It uses the Minotaur Theseus, the underworld, yep. the darkness of war. It has Apollo, the god of light and the sun. It has Artemis. It has many themes there. Michael, what are your thoughts on, as an archaeologist, when you see these things, you know, Australia using symbolism like that, but in particular, that gift of Oath in that museum piece? I mean, it's obviously important for us as Greeks, but what are your thoughts about it? I, I think it indicates the, the strong connection between Greece and Crete. Even in, even in the cemeteries, though, you'll see those connections. Mm. In general cemeteries, you'll see that the symbolism, the Greek symbolism is often used in the, um, in the cemeteries themselves. Yeah. From an archaeological point of view, I've never really thought about it. You must, you must <laughs> forgive me. I'm, I've never made that... Um, uh, I can see the connection, I, I, but I've, I, never I really, I've never really considered it. I can't think of any of other any other piece, you know, in history that would be sort of taken and reappropriated in such a way. What was the word you used? Reappropriated. <laughs> I'll give you another one. <laughs> really? Okay. So the Australian War Memorial is in the shape of a cross mm. with a Byzantine church theme. So the Australian War Memorial in Canberra has a cross with a dome. Of the Byzantine Church. Okay, wow. a lot of connections there. Yeah. None of us are. A, none of Did the you wiser. know that, Nick? <laughs> Not at all. 
But which reminds you, there's another great story you mentioned again off air. You tell us a lot of good stuff off air, so I think it's good. Actually, <laughs> we, before t- we, we talk to too that, much. We do. Before we get to that, hang on. We need another drink. Absolutely. And now this, this, what are we drinking? this particular this drink this is in a is special bottle. Did you fill that up? I did fill it up. So Nick's going to tell us it, what it is. It just drops out of the sky, Michael. This special bottle. I didn't know if I drank the last one. I'm very stealth. Okay. So this special bottle was given to me by a great Australian, Alf Carpenter. He's alive today. He's 105 and he fought all the way from northern Greece into Crete. Wow. You're kidding. Alf Carpenter, yeah, 105. 105 and he's in Newcastle. G'day, Alf. Two Alf. Two Alf. Two Alf. This one's for you, mate. Alf Carpenter. Alf Carpenter. Yamas. Yamas. Cheers to you, Alf. Cheers, Alf. Cheers, Alf. And Alf gave. I met Alf in 2009. Take it easy on this one, boys. (laughs) Take take it easy. All right. Okay. So I met Alf. Talking Cretan in a minute. (laughs) I met Alf uh, (laughs) in 2009. We went and 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 I presented him with a plaque from the Australian and New Zealand Cretan Federation and. um, he said, you know what? I went into his house in uh, Charlestown in Newcastle and he had this wall where norm- people would normally have a plasma TV, you know, or something like that. This man had his medals, had citations from Greece, from Australia, had certificates, Greek medals, war medals. It was like a shrine to Australians in Greece. The Order of Australia. And he goes... He goes, you know what? It's 10 o'clock in the morning. He says, I really appreciate you guys coming over. He says, see that bottle over there above the fireplace? It was given to me in 1991 on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Crete. I went back to Crete. And I've had it here for 18 years now. I think now's a good time to open it. And he opened that bottle, the green bottle there. You can see the, um, the, centenary, the 50 years on that. So this is the bottle? It's the bottle, only the bottle. And, we, and at 10 o'clock in the morning... Alf, back then he was in his 90s. We finished the bottle. It was a small bottle. It's only a small bottle. It's like a Gazoza bottle for the, um, yeah. the listeners. Gazoza bottles of the 1980s and 90s, yeah. if you can recall those. We'll take a photo and post it on. Yeah, Instagram. take a photo and post it on. I couldn't help myself. I took the bottle. And I've kept the bottle now since uh, 2009. But what I put into it is a very special drink. And that's what you guys are drinking now. This is It's a, vicious. This is vicious. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to sip it very slowly. Why didn't you tell me it's earlier? That's a good tip. Do not, do not. You should, you, that should have come slowly. with a warning, Nick. <laughs> this is a chikudia. It, it says Crete on it. This, this is a chikudia yeah. made in southeastern Kenya, in the okay. region of southeastern Kenya. It is a chikudia found nowhere else in Greece or in Crete. It's made from the juiciest, blackest, most ripened mulberries of the region. Okay. They call it in Cretan Murnarorachi. Okay. Right. The Cretans come out. Or there we go. Murnidia. Okay. Now, this is only made in those villages of Temenya, Yairini, and it is potent. It's running at 55 to 60% oh. alcohol. Holy shit. You want to sip this because the reason why is if you sip it very slowly, it'll evaporate in your mouth before it touches your throat. And it has great nuances and flavours that are found in no other drink. Mm. This reminds me of the story of Dick Plant. Mm. Dick Plant was an Australian with Lou Lind, and he's on the run. He's injured. He's, 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 he's got blood poisoning. He's running through the village of Moni. 
which is near these villages here in, in Selinos, in, in my part Can of Can you just Crete. repeat that? Moni, M-O-N-I. Moni, okay. okay. Moni, let's just... Moni, as in, as in <laughs> monastery, okay? <laughs> let's just okay. get that sorted. And the Cretans of, uh, you know, Lou Lind's with him. Lou Lind, another famous Australian, has passed away. And he's carrying him, he's holding him, he's, he's, the guy's sick as... And, and he gets to a house in Moni, in these villages where this Murna Rorek is made... This guy's laughing. <laughs> no, it's the alcohol. Yeah. It's the alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nick. Okay, that's okay. You fucking anyway, killed us. And then we're only on the third bottle. We've we got to have a bit of a laugh. We do. Well, we know? have to. And he goes, and, and the, the Cretans get him, the Zorbazakis family, and they do cupping on the sick dick plant. Okay. They cup him, you know, with vendusas. Yeah. yeah, I had a, we, know, we a speak, week ago. Yeah, bravo. And we spoke with, about it in our yeah. last podcast. And they yeah. save this guy's life. They save Dick Plant's life. With vendusas. With vendusas and cupping and cutting and ooze the poison out of his blood. It saved his life. He gets back to Australia and eventually gets back to Crete and he meets the old warriors there. And one of them, Andonis Daskalaki, says, with a translator, obviously, I have a daughter in, in Sydney, in Paddington. He gets back to Australia and he heads straight for Paddington. And Dick Plant goes and sees his Cretan daughter in Australia, Nikki Yoriakaki. Wow. And I met Dick Plant when I was 20. Mm -hmm. I met an Australian that spoke Greek. I never met an Australian before that that spoke Greek with a Cretan accent. Kidding. And this guy, he would go to the shooting range Mm -hmm. in Malabar Yep. <laughs> from Bayview, which is up at Palm Beach, yep. on the way he'd stop at Paddington. I could see that, that so uh, he rifle could, range from my bedroom yeah, that's growing right, up. Yeah, yeah, and he would stop at Paddington to hang around the Cretans, and Kidding. I saw him there. Wow, what a story. Unbelievable. Wow, Nick, can you give us... So you talked about the Cretan dialect. Can you give us an example of how that, the word is spoken back then. Or give us an example of the Cretan dialect. <laughs> okay. I love this. So in Athenian you would say, Kalimera sas. Tikanete. Iste kala. Kherete. In Cretan dialect be, Itakaz more kopeli. Kalimera. I love it. I love it. Oh, Nick, can you talk Cretan from here on in? I'm Athenian. Yeah. O sathes, George, o da borume, o de thakano michadaleme. When when Nick gets into the Cretan, it's like he's uh, he's he's transformed. <laughs> the Nick we know goes away. You know what? He grows ten foot tall. Chest look, comes out. Look, there's a, there's a little story here. Uh, I go to Greece with my with my kids, my wife, and um, we go to the archaeological sites and we go to the, the you know the beaches, the umbrellas. And we go everywhere. I say, don't say a thing. I'm going to speak in Cretan dialect here. Yeah. Otherwise, we get we, we know we get wrong here. Because <laughs> <laughs> they can see your dress, they can yeah. see your way you're dressed and everything. But when you go to a, a beachside and you go, "Itakas more kopeli aftes umbrellas itakanone," posathes. How much do you want for an umbrella? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the guys up the Greek is it? To learn ne, you go up the Greek is and then it starts a conversation. Yeah. It's not meant to roll them. It's, it's, to me, it's meant to, um, to connect. Mm. That's mm. what it's for. Yeah. yeah. And, and what you do is you do connect. Because within five seconds, I'll say I'm from Australia. Yeah. But I, what I want to do is to try and just connect with them. Yeah. And to say, well, I'm a Cretan. I'm a Greek. But then I'll tell them I'm from Australia. I won't yeah. find that from you. 
Yeah, look, we, we do the same. We go to Greece as well. We just say, look, I'm a Greek from Australia, and they love yeah. it. Yeah. I said, oh, my God, wow, you're a Greek from Australia. And then you got to tell them a story and so forth. Yeah. Then yeah. they always finish up, yeah, the Cosmos, you see, you, you want to yeah, ask yeah. still. Always. So sli- sip this one very slowly. Oh, man. I'm getting, I'm getting a smokiness from it as you're, well. You're getting all kinds of things. You get, look, Remember, it's a black fruit. Mm. There's other esters, other f- nuances, flavours. This one deserves respect. Slow sip. Siga, siga. Yeah, mm. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I've got, I've got a bit Definitely. of a story on the, the Cretan spirit. Oh, please. Oh, here we go. Please. The stories are getting I, better now. Keep I happen going. to be married to a, a German. Okay. My wife is German. And we were... My, my friend El Peter and her husband were taking us around to, to meet some people to talk to them. Mm-hmm. And she said, well, go and talk to this fellow. He was an eyewitness to the bombing of the, the craft. He saw it get sunk. So we're sitting there and we're, of course, we're having a drink. And my friend uh, El Peter, her husband, Mike, thought it would make a really good joke to tell him. So he said, ah, look, German. Germans captured another Australian. He didn't think my wife was German. He thought she was Australian. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. We had to leave. Really? He wouldn't talk to us anymore. The next day he saw me, mm. he came over and he apologised. Mm. And he said, well, two of my brothers were killed by the Germans. It's very difficult for me, but I do understand. Yeah. And another thing on the Cretan spirit is that... Um, the the wrecks that that I worked on, I found in the records that they carried um, one of the wrecks carried four Vickers machine guns, brand new mm-hmm. Vickers machine guns that they picked mm-hmm. up from Suda mm-hmm. Island on their way out of Suda Bay. Okay. On the way around Western Crete, both of the wrecks I've spent hundreds of hours diving on them. There's no Vickers machine guns to be found on these wrecks. And I'd always wonder what had happened to them. And I knew the locals knocked off a lot of stuff. Mm. And we were in a village and El Peter was with me and we were talking to people. And I said, well, go and ask about the machine guns. Because they don't, the Cretan people, because I don't speak Greek, they don't trust me, but they trust El Peter. Mm. So she asked, um, does anybody know what happened to the machine guns? And one guy just started to nod. <laughs> and I said, you've got to ask, ask him. And he said he knows somebody that has one in the basement, in his cellar. Okay. A working Vickers machine gun. A working one. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's still working. You know? And then I said, look... You've yeah, got Cretans to... don't muck around with yeah. that stuff, mate. <laughs> you're... Well, you've got to ask him. And I said, you know, well, why would you want a machine gun? <laughs> and he said, you never know when the Germans are going to come back. <laughs> I thought you were going to say for a Cretan wedding. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> Up in the mountains, oh yeah, I went to one of those. It's a noisy affair, there's no doubt about that. <laughs> See, that, that at least is believable. Yeah, no. Classic. Mm. Nick, one story that you mentioned, I think a couple of weeks ago, about a suburb in Margaret River. I think it was called yeah. Pendeli? Breveli. Breveli, yes. So what we have here is um, you've got Jeff Edwards, an Anzac, Western Australia, Perth. He's in Rathamnor. He's evading capture. He gets to the monastery of Breverley in the centre of Rethymnor, south coast, roughly, and they save his life. The, the, the monks, under the guise of the monastery, mm-hmm. have a radio transmitter, have, have uh, connections and talking with submarines, and they get him off Crete. Wow. 
he comes back to Perth in the Second World War, mm-hmm. after the Second World War, and he's so, so thankful and grateful. He names his house in Perth Breverley. He leaves Breverley, uh, his house, he goes to the Margaret River, then it was just bush, and creates a caravan park, post-World War II, you know, caravan park. And um, he calls it Breverley Park. He's sending money back, he's sending food back to Crete in the post-war period. Eventually, over time, the, the park becomes popular and whatever. The Margaret River starts to gain traction as a wine region, surf region and so forth. We get into 1979, late, late 70s. And what he does, he applies for a subdivision and he creates in his subdivision the town of Breverley. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry to interrupt. Michael's just having a sip here. Mate, this, this stuff no, is this potent. Is, I, I told you guys. Michael, I you told you to sip it, mate. Mm. Yeah, you have to sip mm. it. You've got to give it respect. You said you could, you could uh, taste smokiness. Did yeah. you mean your eyes were misting <laughs> over, perhaps? <laughs> I just, I'm numb at the moment. Yeah. I don't yeah. taste anything. So, We've got a three-bottle limit, okay. it seems. Yeah, well, I think we passed the three-bottle. Yeah. We've got one to go. Yeah. yeah. And so, Sorry, keep so going. what happens? He picks this parcel of land. And he creates the subdivision and he, he calls one of the streets Papadaki Street. He sells the blocks off. People go and build houses. All of a sudden, you've got a village called Breverley at the mouth of the Margaret River in Western Australia. In 1979, he leaves a few parcels of land left over. And what does he do? He, he uses the money from the subdivision and the land holding, selling, and he builds a Greek Orthodox church called St. John the Theologian, Aios Ioannis of Theologos, the same name of the monastery in southern Crete. And he gifts it to the Greek Archdiocese of Australia. And when you go to this church, I encourage all listeners, mm. when they go to Margaret River to enjoy the beautiful wines, first and foremost, go there <laughs> and see this church and see the, the pews, the chairs, the, you know, the, the seats and all the little emblems of the different divisions in Greece. Australian Anzacs at Ford okay. on the back. Then I want you also to go to Google Images, Google Maps. Have a look at where the Kurtaliotiko Potami runs out of Preveli Beach in Crete and have a look at the Margaret River running out into the Indian Ocean in Preveli in Australia. And you'll be stunned by the similarity. That's all I can say. Wow. This is an amazing connection. And uh, the Margaret River Surf Contest is held in Breverley, Western Australia. And that, and that place, that village, that town, derives its name from Breverley Monastery in Crete, thanks to Jeff Edwards, an amazing Australian. And the respect he had. Yeah. Wow. wow, I think we need to... I'm hammered, but I think we need to have no, another shot. One more. <laughs> so, so... I'm going for it. I'm, I've got to, I actually drank it. Well, you've got, you've got to have that now. <laughs> Nick Andriotakis is saying we've got to crack the other bottle. We have a new <laughs> bottle here. The last bottle. Last bottle for the last story. Yeah, this is made in Sydney. I'm not going to disclose where it's made. This okay. one. It's, it's made out of respect by uh, my brother-in-law to our father-in-law, late father-in-law Nicolos, Nicolos Bertakis from the village of Marathokifala in Crete. Mm-hmm. And it's a beautiful um, Hunter Valley Vidello Chikulia. Okay. Oh, there you go. Did you hear that? Yeah. Good stuff. Well, you need to shoot that one now, Nick. <laughs> this is 55%. It alcohol. is, but you're at home. Yeah. You don't have to drive. <laughs> While this is being, built, being poured, just uh, talking about the respect that people gained while they were in Greece and Crete, 
I read you a couple of paragraphs earlier from that letter. When that, uh, the writer of that letter came back to Australia after Greece and Crete, well, after he got out of uh, prison of war camp, he married, but he married in a Greek Orthodox church. Unbelievable. There you go. So here, if you, if you want, with, with his Vidello Cicudia, mm -hmm. you can smell some of the wine, some of the grape variety mm. off the... Um, What's the alcohol content of this thing? No, this is a normal um, 40%. <laughs> 40, down from 55. I just had another shot, by the way. <laughs> so no smokiness. Oh, no, this is different. This has got some beautiful sweet characteristics on slight okay. sweet. Is this how the Cirque du Soleil characters light flames with the torch, drinking and stuff? I think so. Well, I have a great um, this picture. This is more floral. Like, I'll show you guys a great picture after this podcast of... Uh, flombe murna roraki that's rising at least to four to five feet one, <laughs> like something like almost 1.6 meters in the air well, that doesn't surprise me after having it absolutely <laughs> and they, they flombe mushrooms and we and they used murna roraki by a great uh, friend of mine I, I won't mention names because all these things are um for another time yep and um the flombe went 1.6 meters in the air with the amount that Nick's had tonight, if you light a match, how, how much will you reckon he'll burn? I think I'm already lit. <laughs> hey, I'm already burning. <laughs> Stay Hello. away from How low's the ceiling? <laughs> I don't know far to travel, boys. Yeah. <laughs> 15 metres. That's it. So on, oh, the last, on the last toast, here are to the Anzacs. Here are to the, the Greek people. Here is to our common Greek-Australian story. Lemnos... Macedonia, Greece, Crete, and the two and a half thousand Australians of Greek heritage that served Australia. Eviva. Here, here. Yamas. Yamas. Yamas to them. Oh, dear. We've got to sit closer together for these podcasts. Yeah, we do. The amount of toasting we're doing. We don't toast this much at weddings. Isn't it? Don't we hear this? Yeah. Nick, you're a bad influence, mate. <laughs> He's but creepy. the best influence. <laughs> I love Nick. Nick. Nick's got to come on another podcast. Hey, without well, without mentioning any names, just before we finish, this is when we're talking about the dedication of friends, mm -hmm. two mates from Dubbo, mm -hmm. Anzacs, enlisted together on the same day. I think their service number is only four or five apart. Enlisted together. They fought together in Greece and Crete. They were captured in Crete. Went in the prisoner of war camp together. They escaped together. They drowned together trying to swim across a swollen river in northern Germany and are memorialized in Athens together. Unbelievable. And, I mean, that sort of... When we talk about the spirit of Anzac, I think that really is a, a very pointed sort of... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where were they kept? Prisoner of war camp. Uh, I think it was um, Stalag 13C. Right. Up in northern Germany. I'm not trying to be funny. What was Hogan's Heroes? <laughs> That's... But it's got a C on the end. Yeah. That's oh, a, was... That was my first thought. Ooh, yeah. And I, I didn't want to mention it, it for the same reason. So Stalag well, 13. Some people will say to me, oh yeah, my, my father was in Stalag 13. <laughs> You've been watching, but Hogan's they don't—they forget the little C on the yeah. end. Stalag thirteen C. So, so as we go forward, what does it mean to be an Australian of Greek heritage in five, ten, now, fifty years time? 
These stories we've shared with people tonight are stories that can give some guidance. And the Anzac story in Greece will give some guidance. There's going to be mixed marriages. There's going to be an Australian people in the future. How do you connect to all that? How does a, a future Australian of Greek heritage or any heritage connect with their history? Yeah. And I think some of these stories we shared tonight and some of the uh, stories in Greece in the First and Second World War, we haven't touched on Lemnos, that's for another day. And I hope you have the podcast on Lemnos and the First World War. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's some great messages there, there's some great stories, and I hope that um, we can take those into the future with us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is part of why we do this podcast, isn't it? We're trying to bring attention to a lot of these Hidden uh, store or forgotten stories. Hidden stories. We're just glad that we have gentlemen like yourselves mm. who know the stories well and can educate us about them and in turn be able to pass them on to all, you know, to, but, to but, the listeners. But Tom, you started to talk about your great grandfathers. You've got the stories. You can pass yeah. these on as well. Mm, yeah. It's not just Nick and I. I mean, this is, I think, what Nick and I have both we work towards is to get people to tell those stories and to to sure. to, to pass them on Definitely. otherwise they're just they're yeah. going to be lost and that's a so. thing it's a good point you make michael and i've got lots of world war ii stories with my ancestors yeah. but how do you get them out to people i mean yeah. Yeah. you've got to as nick and i have talked about raise that awareness mm. and we thank you for that and thank the opportunity <laughs> here this is another way to do it no, look you. i just feel like looking at uh, all the stories you've got written in front of you. I think we we, we haven't even gone through half of them. Oh, there's plenty more. The, there <laughs> might be a, a you know for two point oh episode. Yeah, yeah, look, there's a few more. Time. We a few say, thousand more. Well, there's Anzac Day next year. There's Ohi Day later in the year as there well. Is. There is. There is. <laughs> there's there's plenty of opportunity. And look, these stories aren't going to aren't going to dry up. There are so many stories out there that yeah. well, we haven't even scraped the surface. There are so many stories that haven't even come to light yet. Yeah. Absolutely. From, from that's even us too. We've got some personal stories we haven't shared with yeah, about exactly. our families. So exactly. yeah. that's what we'll that's, have to do another episode. And well, I'm, sure, the, I'm sure the listeners... I think that's the message here for all the listeners is, do you have a story in your family? Yep. Exactly. Absolutely. Do you have a story exactly. in somebody else, a friend's family? Is there something there? Bring them out. Talk yep. about them. The majority of Anzacs, they were prisoners of war and they came back from a defeated campaign in Greece and Crete. They didn't talk about it. Yeah. I, I encourage everybody to bring it as a living history. Yes. To talk about yes, it, not yes, only yes. on Anzac Day, to yeah. talk about it through the year. Yeah. To go mm. to Greece, to go to Crete, to go to wherever your ancestor was. <coughs> New Guinea, yep. Western mm. France, yes, Gallipoli, yes, wherever. Yes, yes. And yes. go there and see and feel. Mm. And there are many people that are against war. I understand that. There are many people that don't like this this commemoration but they're a minority the majority but it's important to say that it is a commemoration this is it not is. a celebration no mm. we it's are not, a not ce- that's exactly right we are not glorifying war no we are commemorating we're commemorating the sacrifice correct the passion and the love they have for this country that's what we're doing the idea of a story told is a life lived if the story is not told that life is wasted in a way it's no. forgotten very soon forgotten. Even if it's just sitting around drinking raki yeah. with friends. Yeah. And, and, some, and yeah, and, and people will say it's brought in. <laughs> yeah. And people will say, Wow, what a great story. And yeah. somebody's gonna run with it. Yeah. Yeah. 
that'll be a book, that'll be a movie, that could be yeah. a, that could be anything. Absolutely, it could be anything. When you when you see what these people did, the the, the emotions, the feelings these people had, and what they put into it. Yeah, look, even just talking about Battle of Crete, Hill Seven Three One, as we mentioned, you know, you, you could write movies on that, exactly. books on that. Actually, there are books on this. Yeah, but we could do Hollywood, you know, movies on this as well. And again, that comes back to what we were saying earlier. Hollywood's done a great job of glorifying, well, not glorifying, <laughs> has done a great job of telling the story, telling certain stories. Everyone knows, Everybody virtually knows everyone the knows the story of you know, Pearl Hollywood Harbor way. Yeah. and Midway and all of, all of these things because they've made movies about it. It's yeah. in the popular culture. It's incumbent on us to be able to do the same. So it for means our we, we have to put romance into all of these stories, otherwise <laughs> nobody's going to remember them because that's what Hollywood does, don't they? That's true. That's very true. So mm-hmm. if there's any movie producer out there, I'm sure <laughs> got, I can assist them. We've got lots of good stories. We do, absolutely. We have some real We have things. romance. We do have romance. We have Slim Sex. Wrigley. We got the lot. Actually, we have Say that story. You told so, me the so, other day too. Yeah, I'm just going off memory here. So he was, um, Slim was um, in northern Greece and um, he was with the family there. I, I, the, the details escape me here. But what I do know is that they, they supported him and Slim was beside himself. At night he had great guilt. He knew that if the Germans were anywhere near him, this family would be executed straight away. So in the middle of the night he escaped silently, silently, was he didn't want the guilt and the, and, and, and the pressure of this family that would eventually be destroyed. But the Greeks heard him leaving the house and then when they grabbed him, they went and grabbed him and brought him back. After the Second World War, he wrote letters and he ended up marrying the daughter of the house. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of that, but I'm just saying there are many stories out there. That's only a very small one. But for somebody, it's massive. Oh, yeah. Did you end up meeting this guy, Nick? No. And do they live in Sydney? That, or do they th- live? That, that's, uh, that's a story that, that story. Uh, Dr. Maria Hill, another great Greek Australian, that um, brought to light in her book Diggers and Greeks. It's still out there. I'm sure you can buy it on the internet. So mm. please buy it if you want to read about that story. Hey, Michael, you, you mentioned earlier you had a book. What was the title of the book? That's called The Forgotten Flotilla. And that's just about the, um, the landing craft. The wreck that we came across in Crete Perfect. and the work that it did and the connection to uh, the Anzacs. Fantastic. And do you want to give a, a plug to your new book? Or is it too early? The new book? Well, it's probably too early because, um, well, unless there's any publishers out there. Yeah. <laughs> there might be. We're <laughs> well, in there, 59 there countries Look, now. Look, <laughs> uh, the, the new book, I've, I've entitled it uh, Dust, Dust and Shadows. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, the book I've designed it to carry the nominal role, the complete nominal role, but setting it within a scaffold of untold stories and diary entries and that sort of thing too. To tell people, I mean, the story of Greece and Crete and the battles have been told, the, um, the intricacies of the battles have been told so many times before and by better, better writers than me and better historians. I believe that... Um, the untold stories, the real feeling stories from the personal diaries and these sort of things will allow people to perhaps start to realise what these people went through when they were in Greece and Crete, how they, they felt about the Greeks, how they felt about the Cretan people, 
but also how they felt about war. These diary entries that I've, I've excerpted and put throughout the book, I hope will make people start to realise what these, these, these men, these women were young. Mm. You know, 21, 22, even younger. As Nick said, you know, it's completely different. The generation now is so completely different. And hopefully people may start to realise the importance of their relatives that have gone before and what they actually did. This skipper that I I talked about, he, the man navigated his way around the Mediterranean without compasses and without charts. He was 21 years old. When I asked him how he did it, you know, I said, John, how, how did you get around the Mediterranean? He said, oh, I had a schoolboy knowledge of astronomy and I, I knew where the North Star was, so I, I got a broom handle and I tied it to the, um, the railing around the, the, the deck and I got somebody to sit up there and keep it in line. So he's tied a, a broom handle. He's navigated his way around the Mediterranean with a broom handle. Now, how many 21-year-olds today would even know what a broom is? <laughs> Think about yeah. it. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Great if you gave them a broom, they'd have no idea what to do with it. Mm. And here's John getting around the Mediterranean with it. Yeah. Mm. The stories speak for themselves. And look, as, as Nick said earlier, if you do have a story and you're listening to this, <coughs> email us at uzotalk at outlook.com. Tell us your story and we will put you in touch with Michael and Nick, but just make sure that you're telling these stories and make sure that you're documenting them. You know, make sure that you keep that you keep it alive. Yes. Look, and if and if you've got relatives that actually know these stories, make sure you're documenting it for uh, for them. They're not going to be around forever. It's it, you know it's incumbent on us to make sure that we're you know that we're doing everything we can to make sure these stories stay alive and with us. Well said, Tom. And we're gonna have to do another episode on this. Like even I'm not doing my own ancestors justice. Mm. You know, like I mentioned before, Fortis Papa Fortis, he was involved with the, the Sarandania Paramithia, which is an amazing story. My grandmother got caught by the Germans. That's another story which we haven't even touched on. Yeah. Costa Thanasio from Petrovica was a, another story. So, look, we have to do another episode. And apologies to my ancestors for not really mentioning their stories, which I do know. <laughs> Next but, uh, episode. Next episode. There will be a yeah, definitely yeah. Greeks in World War Two episode two point But look, Nick, I think it's been a fantastic episode. I think do you wanna just any final comments you wanna you wanna mention before we close this out? Thank you, Nick. Well thank you, Tom. I think it's been a great symposium. That's what we're doing. Yes. So Uzo Talk is a Greek symposium. That's what it is. And thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Michael, for coming. Oh, my it's been a great pleasure. Night. Thank you. Thank you both, gentlemen. Lovely to meet you both and talk to everybody. Nick, you can't really say too much more after that, can you? I mean, those stories, just unbelievable. I know we've had a few much, or maybe a little bit too much to drink tonight, but look, emotional stories, they're very touching. And more importantly, they, they need to be shared. They need to be told. And the good thing is we're actually recording this podcast and this will be here for life now. So... Like Tom said earlier, if you've got any stories uh, in, that you want to share with us, please reach out to us because we'll be doing another episode. Yeah. And Nick, you were fantastic. And Michael, awesome. You know, your stories were fantastic. And look, there's going to be definitely another uh, episode to come out of this because I just feel like we've only touched the surface. Yeah. Like I said, there's so many other battles that happened that went on that we haven't even touched on. There's no end to it. We talked about individual stories, but we didn't even talk about the whole story of what happened. And 
and there's probably a lot of uh, veterans or ancestors to veterans listening to mm. this. They say, oh, you should have mentioned this, should have mentioned that. Yeah. There is. So apologies to those people out there. Yeah. But there's only so much we can say in a – I think we've gone over time here. But <laughs> We're nearly three hours at this point. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, this is a record for what, Uzo One talk. last thing. Yeah. If people want help with research or direction with yes. research for Greece or Crete, please get in contact with Uzo Talk. And the the boys will put me put them. We'll put, put, we'll put them in contact, contact with you. I'm glad you could say that because uh, I missed it. It's I'm, the, I'm blaming that on what Nick's brought in. No, it's <laughs> cool. That's, that's the, the only thing I brought there, tonight. There'll be a, a connection. Dialect. There will be a connection. And um, I don't. Um, Michael, I don't, you sound very Cretan. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I spend a lot of time there. <laughs> it's the with the are talking. Uh, uh, yes. Uh, that's yes. why Cretans talk the way yeah. they do. Uh, yes. Dear. <laughs> Well, love it. gentlemen, thank you so much for, for being here. Nick, thank you for coming again. Thank you, Tom. Thank Michael, you, Michael. Unbelievable Absolute stories. Nick Athanasiou, thank you very much as well. well thank boys. you, guys. Thank you so much. It was an honour to have you guys here in our house, in our distillery. In the distillery, that's it. Yes, and you too, Tom. Great effort, mate. The way you started this uh, podcast, brilliant. I was getting goosebumps hearing those stories again. It's, it's great. It's what I do, mate. And a great job. <laughs> Uh, as we said email us at uzotalk at outlook.com follow us on social media at uzotalk on most social media platforms and at uzo underscore talk on instagram we'll see you next time Akolufiste mas sto soundies sto spotify sto apple podcasts ke sto google podcasts